How's that for a slice of fried gold? Are you kidding? This is a fucking costume. This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. I'm afraid I can't do that. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! I guess everyone's a title one good scare them. Well, hello, and welcome to Cinema Shock, the podcast exploring the stories behind your favorite cult and genre films. We do all the research so you don't have to. We're three guys that tell you everything you need to know about your favorite movies and the people who made them so that the next time you're caught up in a nerdy movie conversation, not only will you know what is going on, you might actually be the expert. I'm one of your hosts, Gary Horn. Hey, I'm another host, film historian Justin Bishop. And I'm writer-comedian Mr. Todd A. Davis. Brilliant but lazy. Thank you for joining us for our look at the second chapter of Sam Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy. How you guys doing today? Oh, tired. <laughs> <laughs> these, these mother, these old ass motherfuckers uh, stayed yeah. up till four o'clock in the morning. Uh, yeah. To pull, <laughs> to pull the curtain back for folks. Uh, we celebrated a big uh, birthday for my wife last night. And, uh, we had a bunch of people over to the house and we went into the wee wee hours of the morning, including uh, both, uh, d- including all three of us. And uh, I think I left before midnight. So yeah, you did. Leave I'm, before I'm midnight. the responsible adult in the room here. <laughs> both <laughs> Gary and I were 41 year old man. I am. That is past my bedtime. Exactly. Yeah. Gary and I both were up uh, till at least after four. I don't know what happened after Gary left and, <laughs> Yeah. Did you did you end up taking uh, your wife some biscuits or some donuts or something for breakfast? Nobody's open at four She's... o'clock in the morning. <laughs> yeah, there was something <laughs> nothing there for that early. She's still mm-hmm. mad at me. She'll she'll be she'll be all right. <laughs> I hope. Or well, I'll need uh, to crash on one of your couches. Well, that's all right <laughs> you, if you need to. <laughs> well, let's uh, as long as we're all good and ready to podcast and we feel rested enough to do this, you got you got your energy drink there, Gary. I do. I have a oh, good drink I've got, and a topo. Got, oh, yeah, we're ready to go. All right, yeah. so I'm on cup of coffee number three. Oh, that's nothing. I mean, <laughs> yeah, so Spider Man, Sam Raimi's Spider Man, we talked about it last week, and that movie was, you know, to put it mildly, a, a major success. Uh, Broke multiple box office records during its opening weekend and even more as its theatrical run progressed. So it should be no surprise uh, that Sony and Marvel wanted a sequel. Uh, And within just a few days of the release of that first film, they officially announced that a second film was on the way with Raimi and the film star signed on. Production began almost immediately on Spider-Man 2. No matter what I do, do you love me or not? No matter how hard I try, I want Spider-Man dead. It's the ones I love who will always be the ones who pay. I can't keep thinking about you. I'm getting married. I want a life of my own. I'm Spider-Man. No more. Listeners, we can't survive without you. We know you think we can't spoil this movie for you. But 
can't you respect us enough to let us give you a warning? We know there'll be risks, but we want to face them with you. It's wrong that we should be only half a podcast, half of ourselves. We love you. So here we are, talking in your ears. We have always been talking in your ears. Isn't it about time somebody saved your movie viewing experience? These these spoiler warnings are just getting longer and more complex, I feel like. <laughs> <laughs> we, we gave Todd... The, too much power i think <laughs> that's it there's a joke about responsibility there but yeah. uh, you know what todd I've, I've i've got your back you go get them tiger <laughs> thanks um i read a great interview in empire with sam raimi and it's amazing that even after the major success that spider-man had he's completely almost overly humble about it during the interview, you can sense that he's realizing things are changing, but he, reflecting on it, he says, I was in a restaurant with Amy Pascal and some of the other executives at Sony, and they were trying to explain to me how important these numbers were, but I didn't understand it. These guys had been in big games a long time. I had never been in the big game, but I could see how pleased they were. I felt strangely distanced from the whole thing. It was not something I could taste or laugh at. I didn't know how to relate to it. I had spent 20 years making movies that didn't get good reviews or big box office. To survive those 20 years, I had to tell myself, it doesn't matter that it doesn't make a lot of money. It's not important that it doesn't get good reviews. I would just ask people how they liked the movie, and that was what was important. On those grounds, I could win sometimes, because these movies had fans, no matter how few or how demented they may have been. So when Spider-Man made all that money, I was kind of screwed. I was in a different place where I couldn't appreciate it very much. It's really weird. I knew that whoever made Spider-Man, it had many fans and that it was probably going to be a really big hit. But a reason I didn't relate to the number so much was that had any of these other big guys directed it, it would have still made a lot of money. And I would argue respectfully with Sam Raimi to say that yeah. I think he's totally fucking wrong about that. Uh, <laughs> I think he's I think he's not giving himself enough credit there. <laughs> yeah, because not only because I think he brought the right amount of humanity a character to the movie with like Peter Parker, but I think we've discussed plenty of ideas about the franchise that yeah uh, that would not have worked well. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Sam Raimi is a big part of why that movie is special. So Absolutely. take your flowers, Sam. Yeah, <laughs> take the compliment. So although they did not officially greenlight the second film until those early box office numbers came in, Sony was already kind of planning ahead. I mean, that's often the case with big franchises like this. They signed Raimi on for a sequel just as he finished the first Spider-Man movie, so before it came out, which meant that after more than two decades in the business at this point, uh, Sam Raimi would make his first back-to-back -back sequels because you remember even with evil dead one and two people oh, forget yeah. you've got crime wave uh stuck in there so he hadn't even though he had made several sequels at this point he had never made two of them back to back uh, however by the time the sequel was officially announced work on the script which was actually originally titled the amazing spider-man uh was already well underway so on the surface it seems like making another spider-man movie should be a breeze, you know, relatively speaking, because after all, you've solved so many of the problems with uh, bringing the characters to life. You know, they had cast their Peter and their Mary Jane. They had perfected that Spider-Man suit. They had figured out how to make Spider-Man believably swing through the city. But 
Spider-Man 2 would prove to have its share of, uh, of bumps in the road. And furthermore, it had one obstacle that the first film didn't have. That was audience expectation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So with, you know, and that might be kind of where he's coming from in that quote that you read there, Gary. I mean, that's a, that's a big, that's a lot to put on a director's shoulders, which he's never had to deal with before. You know, with, with the first Spider-Man movie, there was not really any standard to live up to. You know, the only Spider-Man the audiences had seen had been in the pages of a comic book or in cartoons or in a short-lived live-action TV series. But with Sam Raimi's Spider-Man, you know, the filmmakers had set the bar for quality incredibly high. And with sequels, you know, audiences always expect bigger and better. So it was going to be up to Sam Raimi and his crew to meet those expectations. To be fair, listening to Sam Aviarad, Grant Curtis, the producer, and Laura Ziskin, like, they kind of had... I think they had the same expectations too. Like they, uh, Sam says when him and Arad would like talk about it, they would always say like, well, what did we not get enough of in the original movie that we wish we'd have done better at? Mm -hmm. And they said it was immediately always, we need more Spider-Man action. Basically besides the fact that a spider dude is crazy enough. They wanted to do like, see the crazier stuff, the cool poses that like Steve Ditko would have drawn him in and fighting alongside of a skyscraper. Or, you know, through a train, auto yeah. and around and over it and everywhere. So in April of 2002, this is a few weeks before the first film was released, Sony hired screenwriters Alfred Goff and Miles Millar to write the sequel script. Uh, Goff and Millar are pretty prolific screenwriters, having contributed to Lethal Weapon 4 and Shanghai Noon and its sequel Shanghai Nights prior to landing the job for Spider-Man 2. Although they're probably most well known as the co-creators of the TV show Smallville. Okay, so, all right, all right. At that point in time, that's what they were most known for. As of now, uh, they are probably most well-known for being the co-creators of the smash hit series Wednesday for Netflix and producer Tim Burton, nice. which I had no idea that they were involved, <laughs> that the same creative team was involved until I started researching this episode. I found that pretty interesting. So a month after Sony announced Goff and Millar's involvement, David Kep, who was the credited screenwriter on the first film, you might remember, he was brought on to co-write the script with them. I'm guessing that when the box office numbers came in, they decided that maybe they should involve the guy who had written the script from that first film, because that seems to be yeah. what happened. Like they hired yeah. Goff and Millar before the movie came out. Uh, just to get started on it. And then when it came out and it made a ton of money, they're like, maybe we should call the guy who wrote the first one and see if he wants to help out with this one. It's it's one of those things where it's like, I mean, there's that old adage of like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But they're like, hey, you know what? We just made a butt ton of money. And if there's one thing Hollywood's good at is lather, rinse, repeat. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, let's do the exact same thing over again. So they brought David Kep on and Kep had big plans for the film. Uh, in fact, as he had written the first film, he had like an entire Spider-Man trilogy mapped out in his head, wow. uh, which looked very different from the final product. And, you know, I love these stories of like what could have been. I mean, you know, the first episode of this series largely consisted of the types of Spider-Man movies that we might have gotten had things worked out differently. Mm. Uh, so in his original idea for the trilogy, Kep had planned on telling the Gwen Stacy, Harry Osborn story. But spaced out very differently than what we end up getting in the movies. Uh, And he actually had Gwen Stacy dying about halfway through the second movie. Now, to me, I think that's a pretty bold choice to introduce a new character, a new love interest, and then kill her off halfway through the movie. Uh, But that's only kind of the tip of the iceberg for what Kev had mapped out. Uh, In his original script for Spider-Man 2, he posits that Peter's parents were pioneering scientists who were also moonlighting as, guess what? 
covert government agents. Nice. When some of their dangerous secrets threaten to come to light, they go on the run, leaving their son in the hands of Ben and May Parker. Now, in this story, Peter has been led to believe that his parents died in a plane crash until he's given a manila envelope by Aunt May. This is an envelope that she was given that she was told to not give to Peter until he turned 21. When he turns 21, you can give him this. And uh, she gives it to him. He opens it up. And inside the envelope is a letter, some photos, and a silver key that leads Peter to a safety deposit box holding a device called the Image Refractor. And Peter turns all of this information over to the only living scientist who had worked with the Parkers, inadvertently giving that character the motivations that will lead him to transform into a supervillain. Uh, wasn't there a comic, a comic storyline where Richard and Mary Parker, Peter's parents, were actually S.H.I.E.L.D. agents? Was that the direction that they went in I, the comics? I'm glad you asked, Todd. I was actually about to say that. They, <laughs> oh. uh, yeah, the uh, when you first though, when you say image refractor, for some reason, every time I read that, I think of like a foil comic book cover or something. <laughs> like I, I don't know why. I just that's all I think of. And I'm like, they left him like some weird annual Spider Man issue yeah. or something. <laughs> just to throw it out there though, like Todd said, uh, in, in in the comics, Peter's parents are government agents. Like they work for Shield or somebody. Uh, but when and, was that invented? When was that that plot point invented? I mean, I think it comes later because yeah. I think it's. I mean, it's before this movie. Okay, but it's but it's it was like in the nineties or something. I was going to say like. it's if it's not in the late eighties, it's probably in the early to mid nineties. Yeah, and that, and I also wanted to say I'm sorry that I might throughout this whole franchise say well actually in the comics <laughs> uh, uh, it's not to be You're a douche guy. i just think it's worth mentioning sometimes course, there's, yeah, been about, there's been a billion issues of spider-man so it's hard to try something that hasn't been thought of with him i i just i'm, I'm reading a butt ton of them right now and so i just every once in a while i'll see something i'm like oh they did that in the comics nah. <laughs> <laughs> well i mean if that sounds familiar to a lot of our listeners then you've probably seen mark webb's the amazing spider-man because that film borrows a lot of elements from kep's script uh however the, one of the differences that in kep's script the scientist slash villain is dr otto octavius not kirk connors aka the lizard as in webb's film mm. now Here's a fun little connection that I found. Uh, this doesn't honestly have anything to do with anything. I just thought it was fun. Uh, but in The Amazing Spider-Man, the movie, uh, Mark Webb's movie, Peter's mother, Mary Parker, is played by M. Beth Davids, who you might, if that name sounds familiar, uh, she had played Ash's love interest, Sheila, in Army of Darkness. Nice. She plays Peter Parker's oh. mom in that movie. I was I was just looking at the credits on it. I was like, wait a second, I know that name. And <laughs> so there's there's a weird Raimi connection there as well. It's kind of just kind of fun. Nice. <laughs> so uh, anyway, so just like in the Amazing Spider-Man, the Captain George Stacy character, that's a major character in, in Kep's script. Uh, there's even a dinner table sequence in Kep's script where Stacy and uh, Peter argue about the legality of Spider-Man's vigilantism, which is a scene that is recreated almost word for word in Mark Webb's film. However, uh, Kep did do a few things differently. For instance, he introduces Eddie Brock in part two, uh, kind of setting him up to become Venom in the third film, uh, which makes sense, uh, you know, introduce him now that'll make it more impactful for him to become venom later on mm -hmm. uh he also has kurt connors getting his arm crushed during the film's final battle uh which of course sets him up to become the lizard in the next film there was like a weird 
request of Venom around this time. Like they people kept demanding Venom. And I know Avi Arad really wanted Venom because he felt like the fans really wanted Venom. So and and Sam always had this thing of like, I think the way he got out of it eventually here is like he was just I don't understand the character. I'd have to read more about him. I don't want to do anything with him without feeling I've got a handle on him, basically. I wanted to mention too for some other for nerds who might be a fan of her uh that back in ga and millar's script uh, the black cat was apparently a major player too according yeah. to according to producer grant curtis they hung on to her all the way through to as long as they could uh or at least up until about this point because she was going to be kind of the antithesis of mj uh she would know all about spider-man's life as spider-man you know like and and be in love with that part of him and the costume and kind of a he, Batman Catwoman sort of thing. Yeah, and <laughs> exactly. A Batman like. Catwoman thing. Yeah. And so, and he, so he would have this, like, you know, he's having this quandary of like keeping his life separate, but in this life, he has somebody who loves him a lot as Spider-Man. So he yeah. has to be real with her. And, uh, but then she ends up, you know, she basically has kind of the same, that super villain moral ambivalence about yeah. everything. So <laughs> they can't connect on that. I don't know, but they they said finally it just it didn't work out because they needed to have no no time taken away from Otto, basically. Well, yeah, you run the risk when you have too many villains um, of it feeling overstuffed as well and you not being able to focus on one, which, I mean, I guess we'll talk about that more when we do Spider-Man 3. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, uh, so Kep's version, that's just one version of this story. A few months later, this is September 2002, uh, Michael Shaban was hired to write a script. Now, Shaban is a very interesting choice for this because, for starters, he wasn't well-known as a screenwriter. He wasn't known at all as a screenwriter at the time. He was, however, an award-winning novelist. His second novel, Wonder Boys, had been adapted into a film by director Curtis Hansen, co-starred Tobey Maguire. This is two years before he became Spider-Man. And uh, then in 2000, which is the year that the Wonder Boys film came out, uh, Shaban pu- published... One of my personal favorite books of all time, which is The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, which is a novel that's set during the golden age of comic books. If you have not read it, I would highly, highly recommend it. Um, nice. it I think it won like a Pulitzer or something huge. Like it, he's won this guy. When I say he's an award winning novelist, he has won some huge awards as a novelist. Uh, so, you know, Shaban had a bit of experience with superheroes, you know, sort of, because they're, I mean, the Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay is about these two guys who create a superhero. They're essentially uh, fictionalized versions of the guys who created Superman. Oh, okay. So um, it's set like during that time. They're both Jewish. They're you know, they're I think one's an Im- one's a Jewish immigrant who fled World War II. Uh, it's a it's an outstanding book. Anyway, uh, Shaman had also reportedly written a screenplay for an unmade X-Men movie back in the mid nineties that never got picked up. And I, I couldn't find any more details on that other than some uh, producers like mentioning that that had happened. But as far as how he got, got the gig writing the Spider-Man two script, I, I honestly have no idea how his name came up other than maybe his agent pitched it to them. Now I do have another little fun fact, unless, unless Todd already knows this fact. So we're not tracking quite yet, Todd. No. But I feel like if you know, you're probably dying to get out. I'm, I'm not connection. To, I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to take this away from you. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, this is a Justin fun fact. Go for it, man. <laughs> Shaman uh, is, uh, he was the showrunner on Star Trek Picard for the first season. He's a writer, executive producer, showrunner on Picard. 
Uh, and then I think he, he, he wasn't the showrunner on the second and third seasons, but was still like an executive producer, I think. Yeah. And he's also written a couple of, of the short treks mm-hmm. as well. Uh, two different episodes of that. So, yeah. So we've got a Star Trek connection before we even get into the cast. Bingo. Yeah. <laughs> and, and his stuff's, his stuff's a lot of fun. I, you know, I'm, for, for more on that, tune into computer resume podcast available now, <laughs> wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> So Shaben's version of this story would have looked wildly different from the final film. Uh, it, fe- it featured Doc Ock, just like the previous script had. But in this version, Dr. Otto Octavius was much younger and was, in fact, a romantic rival of Peter. So he's around Peter's age. Uh, this Octavius was obsessed with Mary Jane, who also she shows a little bit of interest in him and they end up going out on a date. Uh, but this version of Octavius doesn't have the, his mechanical limbs fused onto his body until much later in the story. Uh, it actually I think he gets them fused on that due to a result of a battle with Spider-Man. Uh, he's, he just wears them because he gets an endorphin push from from the act of using them and wearing them. So it's almost like he's a junkie for that endorphin push, you know, that he gets from them because it's tapped into his, you know, his brainstem or whatever. So he's, he's wearing these on his date with Mary Jane, which understandably kind of freaks her out. Uh, And then she gets further freaked out when he uses his mechanical arms to beat up some guys who are bothering them, you know, weird, awkward first date. He was like, <laughs> he's like secretly spanking it under the table every time right. he's having a conversation. With her. That sounds dangerous with those things. It really does. <laughs> you have to use uh, flow for that. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> so it's also revealed in the script that, that this Octavius had worked on the genetically engineered spiders that gave Peter his powers in the first film. So they're kind of connected in that way. And Octavius offers Peter a chip that can take his powers away. So that's how they're explaining Peter losing his powers in this version. So Peter, who is no longer wanting to be Spider-Man, just like in the final film, he uh, he takes the chip. But then later in the film, after the doc's uh, tentacles are fused to him, the tentacles begin to slowly kill him. And guess what? He needs to stop it. He needs that chip that he gave to Peter, which uh-huh. is now, of course, has been implanted in Peter's spine, which I guess means that Octavius is trying to rip out Peter's spine in order to save his whole life for the rest of the movie. I mean, that's the only direction that that story can go, okay. uh, which leads to him forming an alliance with Harry, Harry Osborne, which is a detail, of course, that made it into the final film. Now, there are a few other elements of the finished film that originated in this, this draft of the script. Uh, especially towards the film's finale, the big energy ball ending, uh, the big train fight scene, uh, and the scene where Harry finds Norman's secret goblin stash. Those are all in this script. Now, that's not unusual because a lot of times something like the fight train sequence, they have to start planning that before a script's in place. They kind of come up with you know, set pieces and then write those set pieces into the movie. So mm. that's kind of how that probably happened. Yeah, Sam seems to have, he and Ivan... Uh, seemed to have that train thing early on, according according to Laura Ziskin. Like they wanted that train sequence, like way early into the yeah. project. But supposedly that uh, whole Doc Ock thing with Shaban's script was like an Avi Arad save. If if you're not into that, I guess he he was not into the idea of of a younger Doc. Yeah, he hated young teen Doc in the yeah. love triangle. I kind of I thought. think I would too, honestly. Yeah, I mean, it yeah. could be pulled off. It could be pulled off well, but I, that's not. I think the mentor thing works so much better. Bingo. And and you're you're you know you mentioned how they um they had the idea for the train thing really early on. 
I mean, when they they actually shot like background plates for that in Chicago, per the commentary, like in November of mm-hmm. 2002, well before all this other stuff. Well, before anything else was shot, like they went to Chicago right. to shoot on the on the L there just to get background plates and, and stuff for the eventual battle. Uh, and they don't start filming for a, a few more months after that. Several, yeah. uh, quite a few months after that, actually. So the final screenwriter to enter this arena here is, I think we've already mentioned him probably, but Alvin Sargent, who you may remember was hired to polish up the script on the first film. Uh, Ramey and Sargent sifted through all these various Spider-Man 2 scripts from all these other writers, picking and choosing elements from each that they liked. And then Sargent wrote a script based on all of these drafts while, you know, kind of adding his own touch to them. Sargent was 73 at the time when he was writing this, which is insane to me. And he just passed away recently, didn't he? So he was, yeah, he was like 90 or something. I think when he passed. Yeah. He was of course doing this, not unlike last time, this time with credit as a favor to Laura Ziskin, who's this lover who I talked about us on last episode. She'd like bring him in to come in and tighten stuff up. And apparently Ivan Ravy was also doctoring some stuff here and there, you know, uncredited. I guess he just usually does that. But Sergeant, he says like most of his contributions deal with dialogue a lot of the times, like that he's tightening up the dialogue between characters and like how they're getting from point A to point B, basically. I mean, he ends up being the sole credited screenwriter on this, which... Uh, you know, was kind of the same thing with David Kep in the last film, even though his script, you know, borrowed elements from all these other writers that had written drafts before him. But that's just the nature of Hollywood screenwriting, especially when it comes to big blockbusters like this, where there are multiple, multiple versions of a script. You can tell that he's like old school Hollywood, too. There's there's like weird stuff that he just found very important, like getting Mary Jane running through, you know, wearing the dress, running through the The runaway bride scene. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the runaway (laughs) bride scene and, and, and making sure like, John Jameson came across as like, uh, I don't know, it was almost like he wanted to be like a 50s leading man kind of person You're or right. something yeah. and like he's yeah. like when it, i he's like I, I definitely wrote in after the ending the final battle and everything like he has to come in like a hero like and get out of the police car and run and i, I said he has to jump onto something <laughs> <laughs> so he, like you if you watch it he like runs and he jumps off the pier onto yeah. like a, a thing or whatever yeah because after so well one of the big elements that sergeant added was the reason that peter loses his powers in the film uh the spider-man 2 team had been kicking around this idea that peter's going to lose his power and some of the scripts, like Shabin's, included that as a plot point, but nobody felt that any of the previous scripts had worked it into the story in what they felt was like a, you know, a credible way. So Sargent pointed them towards a famous comic book panel inside The Amazing Spider-Man number 50 titled Spider-Man No More. It's an incredibly famous comic. But in that story, Peter kind of gets fed up because he's not appreciated for all his work and people are going to hate him no matter how many people he saves. So he quits being Spider-Man. And in the comic books, that's actually when the the Kingpin debuts. The Kingpin comes to power while Spider-Man's on hiatus. So in the panel, you see the Spider-Man costume in a trash can as Peter walks away. And that's an image that Raimi recreates like exactly in in the film. If you look at it side by side, like he recreates that comic book panel on screen. So that's kind of where Sargent got his inspiration for how he wanted to approach Spider-Man losing his power. He he felt that it shouldn't be a physical or scientifically explained thing. He felt that it should be a psychological thing. Uh, this is an idea that kind of resonated with with Raimi. As he explained, you know, in a lot of superhero movies, if your hero loses their powers, it's because those powers have been 
taken from them as part of some villain's plot. You know, it becomes a plot-driven decision, but by choosing to allow Peter to lose his powers as an emotional response to his unhappy and chaotic personal life, it, it turns it into a more kind of character-driven approach. Yeah, I think, honestly, that's kind of important for the character of Spider-Man. You know, even going back to some of the things that uh, were worked into the script by Sargent, the idea of having that dialogue tweaked to be just right, and Gary, uh, you know, as a big Spider-Man fan, I'm sure you can back me up on this, that the dialogue, not only Peter's inner monologue, but the dialogue between the characters is kind of one of the big selling points of spider-man as a character in the comics that banter back and forth it's peter pleading his case to hey don't fire me or hey let me skate by one more month on my rent or hey i'm sorry i missed the important thing i was supposed to be here for i had to go save the world but yeah a lot of that stuff is based on that dialogue so that dialogue's got to be nailed down the reason i'm always late you guys never consider that that like maybe i'm (laughs) saving the world i'm saving the world yeah yeah i know that the decision to have peter lose his powers in this way where it's like not really explained in the movie uh it's it really isn't he just kind of loses his powers and the movie never really explains that and to a lot of people i know that that was a controversial choice what do you guys think of that the approach that sergeant took and that Raimi decided to go with for how peter loses his powers Lauren Ziskin and, and Alvin Sargent were huge fans of, but yeah, they they said that that was like a huge internal discussion. Wait, can you really do that? Can you get your point across that way? I think it works fine. I would say I would point these guys to Amazing Spider-Man Annual number one, uh, which is the debut of the Sinister Six led by Dr. Octopus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in that issue, Pete gets super stressed out by a number of things and completely loses his power. So it was not unique to just this script. This was back in the 60s. The funny, well, Todd, I'll let you talk and I'll tell you a funny part, part about that. But <laughs> uh, No, I was just going to say, you know, uh, I'm, first of all, I completely agree. You know, looking at some of this stuff, I think for the average movie going audience, how well was that idea conveyed on the screen could be debated back and forth. I don't know that it's ever, I don't know that that a resolution to that issue ever is very clearly stated, but Mm -hmm. I think it is a fantastic approach because it does kind of break the mold of like Justin mentioned, you know, what had been the standard trope of that sort of plot device in movies up until that point in the uh, comic when he's it's, it's literally just like the movie. So it surprised me. Nobody like mentions this because in the comic, he's like dealing with Aunt May's pissed at him about something. And Jay Jonah's pissed at him and blah, blah, blah. And he's swinging along and tries to like latch onto a wall and he can't. And he just starts falling. Something happens to his web shooter. So he like has to grab onto this flagpole. He's just like hanging on, trying to pull himself up and like figure it out. Like, well, what the hell do I do now? You know, and he's hanging there. And I- I've mentioned this before, but in Stan Lee's Spider-Man, he's very spicy in the way that Stanley <laughs> writes him. And so like one of his first major battles in the comics is with the Fantastic Four because he's showing off and he breaks into their building to fight them to show that he can hang because he wants to join the team. And mainly he wants to join the team because he wants to get paid and he thinks they get paid. So this is how I get money as a superhero, which is understandable, but he develops this like ongoing feud with the Human Torch where he'll try to like, he'll fucking like see Human Torch has a girlfriend and go try to steal torch's girlfriend and <laughs> they're like so they're constantly like fighting he like flirts with sue storm anyway he's like hanging on this flagpole and in the comic the fantastic four fly by in the fantastic car and while they're going by they see him hanging for dear life 
and they had like this combo. There's just like, hey, is that Spider Man over there? What is he doing? I don't. He's kind of he's kind of a douche. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> like the and image just, of them driving by, just flipping the bird at him. Yeah. <laughs> they really are. They're, just like, they're like, I don't, I don't want to talk to him. Just fucking move on. <laughs> and nobody ever mentioned this either. But a weird script fun fact that I wanted to share. I was when I was doing my research about the scripts here. I read about this character that people online mentioned a few times, named Jack Albright. And I was like, Who is Jack Albright? What is this? Thing about i couldn't find anything at first but this is fun too because i know justin used to love those movie novelizations yeah well, this this movies came out months before the actual movie you know so of course i guess this was in the script at some point the writer of the novel was peter david who's a comic book writer but i found a guy on tumblr who was reviewing the novel and he like goes through and explains what happens in the novel and Jack Albright is in the novel. Anyway, I'm just going to read you exactly what he said about Jack Albright. Okay. The first chapter has Otto Octavius and Dr. Kurt Connors meeting on campus because Otto is set to lecture in Connors class. The lecture doesn't happen because some maniac driving a 15 foot tall robot appears like he's stepping directly out of one of those Japanese anime cartoons. He kidnaps Otto or attempts to, Spider-Man, of course, intervenes, saves Otto, and interrogates the maniac to find out why he kidnapped Otto. The guy is a mercenary named Jack Albright, and he goes by Jack All because he is a stupid throwaway character. Anyway, he tells Spider-Man he's going to go after Otto because of the arms, and Spider-Man's all, but he's not a weapons maker because he obviously can't see into the future where he's going to get tossed around by a man with four extra mechanical arms. Anyway, the funniest thing happens, too. Jack All tries to escape by throwing an exploding cigarette in Spider-Man's face, but the explosion lights the rest of his exploding cigarettes on fire. And Spider-Man is watching this man catch on fire and thinking about how awful it must be to burn to death while Jackal trips off the building and dies. (laughs) People below blame Spider-Man, but it literally never comes up again. Peter spends the first act wondering what weapons the great Otto Octavius has been building, but he expresses no grief or regret over Jack All's death and nothing ever comes of it. He's just a total throwaway character that happened to have an amazing battle mech and the shittiest name ever. So this was in like one of the one of the drafts of the script, this character? Well, so, somebody had said that somewhere, but the only thing I could find is like this was in the novelization. The novel- so but, I'm like... But those novelizations are... I mean, they're usually based on a draft of the script. Now, sometimes, as you know, you know, we know from like the Halloween novelization and stuff that the writers can sometimes take some liberties, but usually they are basing their stuff on at least one version of the script. So a lot of times it's not the final shooting script. It rarely is the final shooting script. So uh, I wonder if there was like an earlier draft that he read that had this character in it. But yeah, Jack Hall is a terrible terrible name for any kind of character yeah i was just wondering if like peter david just made that up out of thin air or if at one point we could have had in spider-man 2 a battle mech show up to try to kidnap (laughs) Otto. i guess i'm glad that that didn't happen (laughs) all right so they do finally get a script in place so now it's time to move on to casting one would think that when you're casting a sequel and you've got all your stars under contract for multiple films it should be make things pretty easy you know uh but as we know when it comes to making a spider-man movie nothing is ever that simple uh it is true that kirsten dunce and mcguire were under contract for a sequel in fact when they signed on for the first film they signed a three-film contract which means that they were obligated to work on spider-man 2 and spider-man 3 
However, there was a moment during the development of Spider-Man 2 when it seemed as if the role of Peter Parker was going to be recast. See, as the film was gearing up, there were reports that Tobey Maguire had injured his back while filming the horse racing flick Seabiscuit, and that as a result of his injury, he may not be able to work on the stunt-heavy Spider-Man. Those rumors were only half true. The full truth is that Maguire did have a back condition, uh, but it was one that he had had for years. He even had it while they were filming the first Spider-Man movie. Uh, It's an injury that, you know, when he describes it, he says that it kind of flares up sometimes. Sometimes it doesn't bother him at all. Sometimes his back starts hurting. Uh, And after he had finished filming Seabiscuit, it started bothering him again. Although he is adamant in multiple interviews that I've read where he's talked about this, because he's probably talked about this more than he wants to, uh, but he's always adamant that he did not injure himself during the making of Seabiscuit. But his back was hurting, and so he felt that it was his responsibility to be transparent with Spider-Man 2's producers and disclose the injury to them rather than take the chance that he might further injure himself during the middle of filming and cause the whole thing to shut down. I mean, that's a that's an insurance issue. Like, there's, there's oh, a yeah. lot of – he made the right decision by disclosing that. But it seems that the reports of McGuire's injury went through this sort of – telephone game before the news reached Raimi because by the time it got to him the degree of Maguire's injury had been greatly exaggerated Uh, Raimi had been told that Toby's condition could cause him to be paralyzed if he were to injure his back again so understandably this concerned Raimi who didn't want to ask Maguire to do anything that could cause permanent damage to his back while at the same time knowing that he couldn't compromise the film by slimming down Peter Parker's role I mean it's a Spider-Man movie Peter Parker's got to have a pretty big role in it yeah so (laughs) so he started exploring the idea of recasting the role and sam raimi you know likes to beat the shit out of people so he needs (laughs) he he needs you to not be fragile right so uh so he he started exploring the idea of recasting the role and he went so far as to have serious discussions with jake gyllenhaal about taking over the role uh they i mean they met several times i mean this was like very close to being a deal uh although you know Hall was never given a formal offer by the studio because before he had made up his mind about whether or not he wanted to do the film, Raimi got a call from Tobey Maguire's management and from Sony saying that they wanted a doctor to take a look at Maguire's back. So Maguire gets examined. After the examination, they, the doctor concluded that he did indeed have a back injury that, and that uh, if he were to re-injure it, while it would cause him a good amount of pain, there was no likelihood of him being paralyzed. Here's a here's Raimi's uh, somewhat tongue-in-cheek reaction to that news. He said, I thought pain for actors is a good thing, as long as he's not going to be paralyzed and it could work out. <laughs> Which, uh... <laughs> so uh, there were other rumors of McGuire being fired from the film as well. Uh, in May of 2003, The Guardian reported that McGuire had briefly dropped out of the film after refusing to undergo a full body scanning process that was required for the sequel's upgraded special effects, uh, kind of standard for effects movies these days. But Mm -hmm. at the time, McGuire had been filming Seabiscuit and he was hurting from his back injury that we were just talking about. And he later told The Times, I was working six days, 14 or 15 hours a day. And then it was, do I want to go in on the seventh day for an eight hour cyber scan? So he refused to do it and had a kind of brief falling out with Raimi. I mean, a falling out is kind of how the guardian described it, but uh, it was actually, he was going to leave the film 
until his girlfriend's father, of all people, who happened to be the head of Universal at the time, this guy named Ron Meyer, he urged the actor to reconsider. He actually used Michael Keaton as an example when he did this because he's like, Michael, he said, Michael Keaton never really regained his leading man status after he decided he wasn't going to be Batman anymore, uh, which is kind of true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> At I least do. for a few years. It yeah, was. I was going to say for quite a while. <laughs> for a few years it was. So he reconsidered. He decided to join the film. He even later said that I should have talked to Sam Raimi directly about it and told him why I wasn't doing the full body, why I didn't want to do this full body scan. It's because I just needed a break, <laughs> basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he he later retrospectively said, yeah, we, I should have probably communicated that a little bit better. But uh, so with all that drama out of the way, it was time to cast the film's villain, Dr. Otto Octavius, a.k.a. Doc Ock. You know, several actors, of course, were considered for the role of Doc Ock, including Ed Harris, uh, Chris Cooper, and uh, Christopher Walken, which would have been just amazing, I yeah. think. <laughs> I, I mean, any of those guys, <laughs> any of those guys are good, uh, are good choices, really, for that role. But Christopher Walken would have been something else. I just pictured <laughs> yeah. him doing some of the movements from like, what's that video? Weapon of choice. Weapon of yeah. choice. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Like if you just put some arms behind him, you know, we'll see if, if, if you've got Octavius doing a dance sequence in this movie, Spider-Man three wouldn't have been so jarring for, you know, Peter to do his thing in that movie. And maybe <laughs> this would have been a little, a little more seamless. Well, the role ultimately went to Alfred Molina, who had won Raimi over with his performance as Diego Rivera and Frida, which came out around the same time as the first Spider-Man, I think. Uh, so while, Molina's casting was a bit of a hard sell to some hardcore comic fans at the time. He's not like the first guy you think of when you think of Doc Ock. Uh, Raimi felt that Molina could pull off the human side of the character. They wanted somebody that was likable before he gets turned into a villain, but that was also looked threatening. And and he felt that Molina's large size, like Molina's almost six foot three. He's a big Mm -hmm. dude. Uh, He felt like that was true to the comic book character. Did we mention De Niro last episode? I can't remember. Like he was like apparently considered for Doc Ock when they were going to have Doc Ock in the first movie. I don't think we talked Uh, about De Niro. No, so weird. But yeah, I I was reading something about the last script. Like it was going to end with Doc Ock trying to get to the bridge scene for like Greek Goblin and stuff but then he, uh, he ends up just watching it happen or something instead <laughs> so and, a weird choice <laughs> yeah and so he comes back after Spider-Man in this one or whatever was originally uh, what was gonna happen um, yeah I'm glad they didn't do that <laughs> yeah yeah same but, but most uh, of the time when you hear those stories about what might have been you're like yeah it's probably good they didn't do that yeah <laughs> unless I, the movie turns out bad and then you're like well it could have been any worse i guess i bring that up because it just reminds you that like i think Raimi did have an affinity for Otto octavius which i could totally get in the yeah. comics especially the ones he would have read like he's maybe spider-man's biggest foe he's in the storyline multiple times before like green goblin ever even shows up for sure um, I, I mean for- i feel like i feel like doc ock is the quintessential spider-man villain you could make an argument for Green Goblin as well, and I wouldn't argue against mm-hmm. that. But I don't know. For me, Doc Ock, because he's a mirror image, because he's got the the eight legs, yeah. he's a scientist. He's like yeah. he's like Peter's mirror image almost, or what yeah. Peter could become if he, you know, uses powers for wrong. You know, it's it's there's a lot of symmetry there between the two. Yeah, I love yeah, the idea too point. that Sam Raimi makes all of his casting decisions like when he's just like watching a movie with his wife. And, yeah, and just, <laughs> well, that's the thing like, with oh, that Frida. I, I think his wife actually told him to watch Frida because he's like this. She's like this. Molina guy is awesome. You got you got to check him out. So yeah, it was you know he just trusts his wife's taste in actors, and she's yeah. got, I mean, 
she's got good taste. I mean, Alfred Molina is incredible. Yeah. And Laura Ziskin says like he, he read, you know, like he had to come in and read and sure, everything and, and they all just fell in love with him. And I love the guy too. Cause he, he's very much what I think of when I think of serious actors. Yeah. This is a guy that we're, but like even now in the, in the latest movie, you see people like Zendaya going out of her way to praise him as an actor yeah. and his work ethic. But like that he's very kind, but he's very dedicated and mm-hmm. serious about doing a good job. And I love that he doesn't think he's like above it. He even seemed kind of excited about it. But the dumbass internet, I was reading this one interview with him <laughs> where they asked him if he got excited to see what what fans thought of him being cast in the role. And he said, quote, well, I checked it out once. I went to superhero.com or something like that. And the first message I read said, oh, I saw Alfred Merlina in this film. And that film, I think he's really interesting. That's a neat choice. Once again, Sam Raimi has gone for somebody with a theater background to play the villain, which I thought was an interesting, nice thing to say. And then I read the second one. It said, who the fuck is Alfred Merlina? I've never even heard of that guy. And then the third one was, wasn't he that fat guy in Frida? He's a <laughs> I stopped looking at the internet. Yeah, good good call. <laughs> a good call, Fred. <laughs> he put he put on a lot of weight for Frida, by the way. So yeah. not sure that matters. He was playing him, a, well, but... he was playing a real character. You know, he was yeah. playing a guy who existed in real life. So he was trying to make himself look as much like him. I mean, he also Here's the thing, not doesn't have a Spanish accent. He's yeah. called, it's called acting. Yeah. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> and I'm not, like, he's British. <laughs> I'm glad he didn't go for the uh, dumb bowl cut. And uh yes, and I know he's silly. kind of a yeah, he's kind of a pudgy dork too, Doc Ock, like in the early issues, but yeah. like uh Melina says he ran a lot of them and realized that the look kind of shifts. So his was going for like a, he said he was going for like a 1950s weightlifter. I'm, I'm definitely glad they didn't go with like the very, like the, the comic book. I'm glad they didn't go with right. a, a super accurate comic book look for Doc Ock because in, that's one of those that would not translate terribly well to, to yeah. live action, I yeah. think. there were, I think the there glasses was glasses in the bowl cut, unless, you know, it's yeah. like the one in the 80s where they were going to cast, um, Elton John, in which case he had, he did have that haircut at the time. Right. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Going, going with something like that true to the aesthetic of the original source material can be a bit dicey mm-hmm. and it's just, you know, it, it might not look, I, well, I think we even ex- uh, discussed this a little bit uh, in the last episode, the idea of X-Men, you know, they tried the yellow spandex. It yeah. just doesn't work. It doesn't, it doesn't play. So yeah, I think they, and they, they had enough nods to it. I think he had like the very circular, uh, he wears those when he's doing those, his experiment and because you yeah. see the, the you see the reflection he's that's when he says like yeah. the power of the sun in the palm of my hand you know and he's, and he's even got the sunglasses that are kind of the mm-hmm. same shape and so there was enough there to kind of acknowledge it he still has was, that mad scientist vibe going yeah. on you know without yeah, looking silly well as previously mentioned uh dunst Kirsten Dunst returned as Mary Jane uh, and James Franco, Rosemary Harris, J.K. Simmons, Elizabeth Banks, Bill Nunn and Ted Raimi all returned to reprise their roles from the first film. Uh, newcomers for the cast this time included Daniel Gillies as John Jameson, Elia Baskin as Peter's landlord, Mr. Ditkovich. One of my favorite additions to the cast in Spider-Man 2 are uh, Mr. Ditkovich, as, as well as his daughter, Ursula, which is played by uh, Magina Tova. Uh, I think they're both just a fun addition to Peter's world. Uh, and yeah. then, of course, you've got Dylan Baker as Dr. Kirk Connors, kind of setting that character up. And Bruce Campbell also returns in a cameo role as a completely different character than he had been in the first film. This time he plays an usher in a theater where MJ is starring in a play. 
and then you've got Joel McHale in a very small role as the bank teller or, or the, the loan officer at the bank. Um, you've also got Hal Sparks, Emily Deschanel, uh, Asif Man, uh, Mandvi, and Daniel Day Kim in very, very small roles, along with Ramey regulars Brent Briscoe and Dan Hicks. He was overalls guy and Dan Hicks. Evil Dead too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's mm-hmm. he, yeah, he's overalls guy. Looking through this thing. Oh, also, by the way, Ditkovich. You see what he did yeah, there? I, yeah, yeah. I was, I was hoping you'd pick that up, Gary. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Donna Murphy is Otto's wife. Uh, she's an excellent like stage actress. She's big yeah. in musical theater, multiple time like Tony nominated. I was gonna say she's got and, a Tony at least. Yeah, yeah. She's she's at least won once. Some of the cameos that are in there. I, I totally tried to mention this guy last time, and I don't think I ever got it out. Uh, when I was because I went we went off about Octavia Spencer, but Osborne's Butler is uh, John Paxton who is our boy Bill Paxton's dad. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> who seems to always pop up in everything for some yeah. reason, Bill Paxton. But the Six yeah. degrees of Bill Paxton. Yeah. Uh, Bernard, I think is his name. Sam Raimi's old co-writing buddy, Scott Spiegel. He is the guy who tries to snag the pizza on the balcony. Yeah. Some uh, of the besi- <laughs> behind the scenes footage of Raimi directing him in that scene. If you watch the, the make, I think it's called Making the Amazing, the like two hour behind the scenes documentary that's on the Blu-ray. There's a brief moment where he's, you see the filming of that scene and Raimi's just giving him shit the whole time. <laughs> it's really, it's really, it'd be, it'd be like if Gary were directing a movie that I was having a cameo in or, you know, or, or, or vice versa. Honestly. Yeah. yeah I was about to say, you get He's no special favors. But, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I thought randomly like Phil Lamar, I, it's probably not as big of a name now. Cause he does mostly voice work and stuff. Uh, He's huge but, in voice, but he was in yeah. probably, this was probably around when he was doing mad TV though. right? But yeah, I think he was just like mm-hmm. right, at least around or right after mad yeah. TV that he's on the train there. Yeah, John yeah. Landis is one of the operating doctors. Yep. And of course, the classic Delta 88 is back and Ant-Man's Garage hanging out there. Uh, don't forget, uh, the, don't forget Darnell Rollins, who points out that Spider-Man stole that guy's pizza. He's he was uh very prominently featured on like Chappelle show mm-hmm. and uh a, a lot a lot of stuff on uh Comedy that's Central. such a funny gag. <laughs> yeah, when, when yeah, it's that, great. That line is really funny to me. <laughs> I supposedly uh, I, I feel like I read somewhere that was Stan Lee originally g- was going to do that line and something happened at the time and it messed it up. So they, yeah. they redid they that part. It. But yeah. so Stan Lee is there though, if you missed him, he uh pulls some somebody out Joey, of the way Joey Joey Diaz, line. Joey Diaz one of uh you know uh comedy uh you know comedy legend from long 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 time he's he's one of the, i think he's one of the guys on the passenger he's one of the passengers on the train oh uh, yeah 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 you're yeah, right it's, and, uh, it's really funny watching these earlier marvel movies to see how small the the stan lee cameos are compared to yeah. what they would later be like it's like oh, a yeah. blink it's blink and you miss him in yeah. both the first one and the second one you know, <laughs> it uh, sounds like in both of them though he had lines and they just ended they up just got cut not happening yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the two kids who hand Spider-Man his mask on the train and say, "We won't tell nobody." Those are Tobey Maguire's brothers. Okay, uh, I it, assumed that those kids had to be related to somebody when I was watching this because watching it, I was like, "There's no way those are actor kids. Those don't look like actor kids. Those look like normal stinky kids." <laughs> <laughs> they just happened to be on set that day, he said, and so he was like, "Sam, you got something they could do," and so he put them in that scene. Also, apparently, that was not the line. 
So uh, on the commentary, according to Sam, it's a genetic thing. Apparently they get their first ever acting role and they just all already think they could pick what they want to say. They're, just, they're ad-libbing. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, funny. Peyton List is fantastic. If you've never seen her, but most people might know her from like Cobra Kai, Hoobie Halloween. She's in a show now called School Spirits. I was reading, she made her own screen debut in this movie. She and her twin brother are the kids that Spider-Man saves like right at the beginning from the truck coming at him oh yeah so it's like don't play in the street or something like that but yeah she's she's getting pretty popular now but uh oh, wow. oh and uh yeah. willem defoe willem defoe was there everybody <laughs> he's not on screen though right <laughs> yeah he's he's at the uh he's at the end the well yeah list. yeah yeah okay you talking about, i thought you were talking about the his little uh prank that they pulled on alfred molina yeah we gotta <laughs> figure out a way to clip that and put it on social or something yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> they sam brings cool. alfred in saying they're looking for something different and basically walks him onto the set where he's first doing the experiment and willem defoe is in the arms yeah uh, where he's basically telling alfred molina that this is ha- this is how this is a good actor this is how you should play this scene apparently he was like literally walking home one day like to his apartment or whatever and he saw they were filming and he wanted to just see what was going on and it was spider-man 2 and (laughs) avi arad's like says he was just like what are you doing here and he's like i don't know i was just seeing what was going on he's like well (laughs) you you should do something (laughs) that's fun so we we listed a lot of names during that cast segment so surely some of these folks surely you've got a few star trek alumni here yeah, uh, actually, we've got uh, another decent-sized handful uh, for this one. So returning for the sequel, we have John Dykstra, uh, Mark D- D'Alessandro, Jill Sayer, and, of course, Kirsten Dunst. But this time, we've got Bill E. Rogers as one of the firemen. He actually did six episodes of Next Gen. Uh, two of those episodes are uh, notable. Season 5, Episode 6, The Game, which co-stars Ashley Judd. And season five, episode eight, Unification Part Two, which is co-starring uh, Leonard Nimoy, aka Spock. Ashley uh, Judd was on Star Trek. Yeah, yeah, she was. <laughs> uh, had a bit of a little bit of a romance there with Mr. Wesley Crusher. Yeah, oh, it was, it was fun. <laughs> Gross. Yeah. <laughs> then we've got for her. Tim's- I mean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We've got Tim Storms as Chainsaw Doctor. Uh, Tim did two episodes of Star Trek Enterprise, doing a lot of stunt work. And then he was actually in 28 of 30 episodes of Star Trek Picard. He was the stunt double for Patrick Stewart. Oh, wasn't he, he the uh, Wasn't he the world champion with the NWA at some point? Uh, no, that, I wasn't that, even going to make that joke, but I was I, thinking I, it. I thought about I thought to let it go, but yes, not to be confused with Tim Storm. Singular. Uh, yeah, yeah. Singular Storm. <laughs> uh, then we've got Kelly, Kelly Connell as Dr. Isaacs, who did an episode of Star Trek Voyager. And Daniel Day Kim, as Justin already mentioned, did the episode Blink of an Eye. That was season six, episode 12 of Star Trek Voyager. He also did three episodes of Enterprise as Corporal D. Chang, one of the Makos, or Red Shirts, if you will. And one of those episodes that he did on Enterprises of note, it's season three, episode three, Extinction, which is directed by LeVar Burton, a.k.a. Jordi LaForge. Ten years after that episode aired, Brandon Braga, one of the show's producers, called the episode, quote, one of the singularly most embarrassing episodes of Star Trek I've ever been involved with. (laughs) 
And LeVar Burton himself has gone on record admitting he was ashamed that he directed the episode. Uh, That makes me honestly want to go watch that. I know I was about to say, what is this episode? (laughs) I I don't want to spoil it, but go check it out. It is definitely worth watching. (laughs) I had no idea Daniel Day Kim was ever. Daniel Day Kim, of course, for people who don't don't know the name, I mean, he was most well-known for his role on Lost for all like eight seasons or whatever. He played Jen. And then he was on Hawaii Five-0. And, you know, he's he's gone on to be a well-respected actor. But he's got a pretty small role here as Octavius's uh, like lab assistant. He's got like two lines, I think. Yeah, very, very small. But uh, last but not least, we've got Donna Murphy as Rosalie Octavius, Dr. Uh, Doc Ock's wife. She was in Star Trek Insurrection 1998 as Anaish, uh, who inspires Picard to Mambo when he gets back to the ship. Uh, Star Trek Insurrection was, of course, directed by Jonathan Frakes, a.k.a. Commander William T. Riker, and alongside Spider-Man cops Mark De- D'Alessandro and Rick Avery. So, and that's everybody in Star Trek. But I'm a lot. Yeah, so you're gonna have better luck on. You're not gonna have much luck on our next series. I'll tell you that. Yeah, yeah, probably not. <laughs> that's why I'm trying to enjoy it as much as possible. Really, I'll be, I'll be surprised if we have anyone on the next series until like episode five or six. So. Yeah. <laughs> So filming for Spider-Man 2 was, uh, it was actually supposed to begin in January of 2003, but it was delayed until April because McGuire had to go finish some reshoots on Seabiscuit. Yeah, we mentioned earlier the uh, train scene, like Sam had been doing some stuff earlier on in November 2002 uh, in Chicago. And it is because I guess he was looking for like an idealized New York uh, rather than the regular one, uh, New York does not have L trains, at least in yeah, Manhattan. It no, it <laughs> so. doesn't. I think New York briefly had had an L train like many, many, many years ago. Yeah, I think like not since the 50s has yeah. there been a running train like that. It's all subway there now. So they did it on the loop in Chicago. But it's crazy because he, he talks to the DVD, uh, the commentary about just, you know, he was like still working on putting out the DVD for the first one. And he's already like working on part two, like yeah. trying to fill this stuff for him. The hospital scene, though, actually was, they said, the first thing that they shot. Grant Curtis, uh, the producer. Yeah. Like the operating room? Yeah. Sorry. The uh, Doc Ock uh, operating scene. Yeah. Okay. This, nice. They said it was a, it was actually set up to be like a test thing just to see how the puppeteering of the arms was going to work and to see mm-hmm. what they were capable of. They had done some stuff where they like got some, uh, it was like vacuum tubes or something and stuck it on a guy so they could figure out the leak and everything. So then they finally got the real ones built. They were like, well, let's test them out and see what the puppeteers could do with them. And so they were just like playing around with a little test shoot right there. They said, though, it was like going so awesome. They were like, well, test or no, we've got to like seriously film this now. Like this is, <laughs> we need to do something this with this. It's too good. It's too yeah. good. It's certainly one of the more memorable scenes. So, Oh yeah. Yeah. I will be, I'm sure I'll be raving about it later on. Cause it is one of my favorite things about this movie. Well, the shoot was, uh, it initially began in New York, like the actual shoot, like the, the stuff that they shot in Chicago, that's more like second unit stuff. It was for effects. Uh, they were to your point, Gary, one of the reasons that they wanted to film on the loop in Chicago is because the buildings are like right next to the tracks, which makes right. it a very dramatic you know and obviously it even plot wise is important because that's how peter stops the train by grabbing out of the buildings mm-hmm. uh, so they they needed to film it in chicago but that yeah that's like second unit uh, effects unit stuff uh when they began the shoot proper that began in new york but like on the first film the new york shoot was primarily just a handful of exteriors and by may the shoot had moved to los angeles where it would be shot almost entirely on sound stages and sets over 100 sets that were built and designed by neil spisak so 
I'm not sure that we talked about Spicek on our last episode. I, we might have mentioned him offhand, but I don't think we really talked about him a lot. So I wanted to make sure that we give him some props here because Spicek, he's a production designer. He began his career in the early 1980s. And by the 90s, he was working on some pretty big productions. I mean, he, one of his first like hit movies was probably Benny and June. But then he worked on, you know, Michael Mann's Heat, John Woo's Face Off. And uh, in a movie that I know, Gary, uh, you talked about enjoying recently, which is Barry Levinson's Disclosure. It's just, uh, it's an insane movie. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He began his work with Sam Raimi on For Love of the Game in 1999, and then he went on to work with the director on The Gift and on the first Spider-Man film. And I think all of Spice work on the film is pretty incredible. Uh, After all, it's not easy to make a soundstage in Los Angeles look like a bustling New York City street. But I think Spice coolest contribution to the film in my opinion at least is doc ock's lair which is this collapsed pier where he hides out and attempts to perfect his fusion energy experiment so not only did spicek pull off the creation of this lair but using the collapsed pier image like that imagery that was his idea that wasn't like written into the script that his lair would be this collapsed pier uh he actually designed it to look like it came out of a German expressionism film, you know, something oh, wow. uh, like the cabinet of Dr. Caligari or Fritz Lang movie. Like he wanted to design it to look like that. And, it, and I think he pulled it off, but he also wanted it to act as a reflection of Octavius's previous lab that had exploded. So construction on that set alone took about 15 weeks. It took up the entirety of Sony's stage 30. And in the end, this stage or the set measured 60 feet by 20 feet long and 40 feet high. It's enormous. Uh, Uh, With a quarter scale miniature that they also built off to the side uh, that was kind of built as a uh, for the finale when the pier collapses, they couldn't collapse, you know, the soundstage. (laughs) So they actually had not not for lack of trying, though, (laughs) they actually had to (laughs) shut the film down for about eight weeks while construction on the pier set was being completed. So they the whole movie went on hiatus so they could fix this thing. Uh, Now, another vital piece of equipment that was used in the making of Spider-Man 2 that I found like really fascinating just because I, I don't know, I, I kind of get nerdy about reading about technology like this that I ha- was kind of previously not very familiar with, even if I had seen it in action, but it's this thing called the spider cam. The spider cam is a, it's a cable suspended camera and rigging system. If you've ever watched an NFL game where you see the camera kind of flying over the field on a line, that's a spider cam. Uh, and despite its name, the spider cam was not created for this movie. It spelled spider with a Y. Uh, It was created much earlier than this, actually, in 1992. The first film that used it was Cliffhanger in 1993. And this system was briefly used in the first Spider-Man film. Uh, It was used for the last last shot, that last final swing through the city that Spider-Man does at the very end. That's the only time they used it, but they used it a lot more extensively in the sequel. And using the system allowed Raimi to create shots that really feel like you're seeing them kind of from Spidey's point of view or like the camera is with Spider-Man because they really had strict kind of rules that they set for themselves to how the camera would act when Spider-Man's swinging. They kind of wanted the camera to be as if it's a second Spider-Man, like a cameraman swinging along beside him or behind him, you know, and not, not cut from like the bottom or, or not cut back and forth. They wanted to feel very fluid. And the way to do this is to use this, the Spider-Man, the spider cam. Uh, So it really feels like you almost get that sense of vertigo from some of these shots, especially if you're seeing it on the big screen, like in a movie theater. So there were times when this system allowed the camera to drop 50 stories with shot links of about uh, the, the biggest one was 3,200 feet a single shot that went across 32 feet of line. That's over half a mile 
yeah, <laughs> that, that the camera travels. And if you watch some of the behind the scenes footage of this camera, like dropping through the city of New York where they set it up, it's wild. Like it drops fast. And they had to, of course, they, they would change the camera speeds and stuff like that. To, to make it look how they wanted it to look in the film. But it, it's a really cool piece of equipment because it's computer controlled. Uh, there's motion control uh, system on it. So it's actually a very cost-effective piece of equipment because basically they would create a CGI digital version of the city in their computers beforehand. They'd plan out all these shots, program the camera to make the moves that they needed to move, and then they would set it up in the actual city and it would allow them to shoot multiple takes with the camera making the exact same movement every single time, which is actually a lot cheaper than fully rendering a photo real New York City in CGI. It's, it's cheaper to just shoot the background plate of the scenes where Spider-Man is, is swinging and then you can CGI Spider-Man into it, but you're not creating an entire CGI scene. So even though like you watch it and you're like, oh, you guys are flying a camera that are suspended on like four or six different cables through New York City, that seems like it'd be really expensive, but it's actually the cheaper version of what they were trying to do. <laughs> so that spider cam is cool. It's just one of the, it, just one piece of groundbreaking equipment that they used on the film. I think another one of the coolest things that they created on the film was Doc Ock's mechanical tentacles. The final design on those tentacles, it was a collaborative effort between the film's costume designer, James Atchison, same guys on the first film, and visual effects supervisor, John Dykstra also returning from the previous film. So once a design was in place for these, the physical tentacles used in the film were built by a company called Edge FX. And these guys, they created a corset, uh, a metal and rubber girdle, and a rubber spine, and four foam rubber tentacles that were about eight feet long and altogether weighed about 100 pounds. The claws of each tentacle, which they called death flowers, which is odd, <laughs> that was the death flowers. They were each controlled by a single puppeteer. And while the tentacles themselves were each controlled by four people who rehearsed every scene with Alfred Molina so that they could give a natural sense of movement to make it look as if the tentacles were moving along with Octavius's natural muscle movement. It took a lot of work to get that to look right on screen. Mm. And, and on set, Molino referred to his tentacles as Larry, Harry, Moe, and Flo. Uh, Flo was the top right tentacle it was named that or he named it that because it was operated by a female puppeteer and that's the one that was performed the more delicate operations like removing his glasses or lighting a cigar or sipping the whiskey you know that was that was Flo's job I like that it's also the one that uh throws his uh maker's mark glass you know yeah later yeah. <laughs> Sam Raimi is an ambassador for maker's mark uh we have talked about that amongst ourselves but I also realized now this is two movies in a row where somebody has a glass of maker's mark and then they throw it across the room yes yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know if there's a message there or not ah, yeah. ah maker's mark good for throwing <laughs> hey you gotta, if you if you throw enough glasses full of maker's mark you're eventually going to have to buy another bottle of maker's mark exactly. so it's really really great marketing that's yeah. what these people with bud light don't realize what is it <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Uh, Each tentacle was supposed to have its own personality too, you know, like it, it, it was interesting. Like it, I think in some of the early versions of the scripts, they said it, they were trying to think of a way to like have them have, like they were interacting with Octavius, like calling him father, basically like that, mm. that there was a, you know, something like that in the hospital scene. I remember Sam talking about trying to make sure, and he wasn't positive. He ever got it to be really apparent that the arms are acting on their own sometimes you know yeah. i think he, yeah. he does get it across but like in I, the hospital scene like otto's not aware of anything that's happening there they're saving themselves yeah and i i absolutely get that 
from it, though. You said Sam thought that he didn't pull that off. Yeah, when during that hospital scene, he was kind of in the commentary just talking about like, I'm not sure I ever portrayed it properly. I, don't know. I actually, I mean, I get that immediately from it, especially there's one scene where uh, early on after he's turned into Doc Ock, where Alfred Molina's sitting here talking. I can't remember the monologue he's having, but the, the tentacles are kind of behind him and they're kind of swaying and they're kind of like looking at him and reacting to what he's saying. And it yeah, really yeah. feels like he's surrounded by a, like four snakes who are all like watching his every move. And it, it feels to me like they were purposely done in a way where it's like they have their own personality. So I think he pulled it off because even without knowing that that's what he was going for, it came across to me. Oh, yeah. Again. Well, there's, you know, there's actually there's, one of my favorite little touches of that scene is how you can see the personality of those. Yeah, there's one where one of them gets really close to his ear and you can see there's a couple of little parts that are moving and it, like yeah. it's whispering yeah. in his ear. And yeah. and I, I don't know if it was a physical, I, it was probably a digital tentacle, but Alfred Molina just gives that real subtle turn, like something the thing just yeah. whispered to him. He gives like just a little bit of a head turn towards it. It's, it's, it's one good. of those really subtle things that mm-hmm. I love about that, yeah. <laughs> about this performance along with the production and special effects. There's also like a special feature or a scene somewhere. I can't remember where I saw it now, if it was like a hidden scene or something, but he performs If I Were a Rich Man with them from Fiddler on the Roof. It's very nice. Well, uh, Raimi preferred using the physical tentacles whenever possible. Uh, And any shot where we see them, uh, they actually filmed them using edge fx's creations anytime that it was possible this was not just a creative decision it was actually an economical one because uh it's cheaper to use the physical ones than the cgi one kind of the same thing we were talking about with the spider cam before Mm -hmm. uh but some of the shots involving the tentacles were just impossible to pull off with puppetry so for those scenes cgi was used like in the scenes where the tentacles carry doc ock across the room obviously the puppet tentacles that are made of foam are not doing that so to create those shots alfred molina was uh, harnessed to a 20-foot rig that allowed him to glide through the sets and then the tentacles were added in post-production uh let's see i think i've got some fun facts here from filming that just we can throw out randomly the uh opening cons like the art that recaps the original film i guess some nerds would appreciate just the recognition of that's alex ross uh oh yeah, yeah. obviously doing that so he did all those paintings uh i mentioned laura ziskin already in the episode and i obviously went on a rant about her last time and she's still a huge part of the production here and had some great stories but Unfortunately, during the process of this film, uh, she is diagnosed with cancer. And uh, so she has breast cancer that was apparently missed. So it had progressed uh, Mm. a a good bit. And so she's battling with that during this whole thing. She's tough because she had felt, she says she felt entrusted by sold execs like Amy Pascal to oversee this thing and make sure it gets done properly and uh she refused to step away from the whole thing and though she was encouraged to do that uh she said that the best way for her to fight was to do what she was good at she wanted to show up for work so um she seemed to know that spider-man was going to be like part of her legacy as well so it's nuts though i I think she went to the premiere of this movie and then the next day went into treatment so like she prolonged everything until that uh, anyway, I'm thinking about that now because she also started up a cancer foundation during this time too. I think with like Halle Berry or something, and in in here somewhere it happened. And and those Alex Ross paintings uh, apparently like were one of the first things they like auctioned off or oh, whatever cool. as uh, yeah. money for charity. Nice. Um, I wanted to mention Bill Pope too. 
Like they say, like Sam Raimi's always trying to get Bill Pope. He was always busy. So yeah. as soon as he's available, Sam Raimi wants Bill Pope. Well, Bill Pope did Army of Pope. Darkness, right? Yeah. 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 And uh so but but you know, he he blew up. He was doing the Matrix movies and all that yeah. shit. So um he does but, a lot of Marvel movies now. Yeah, yeah. And uh I think was he on Doctor Strange? I don't even remember. He, now, I can't but, remember. He may have been. But they talk about how great he is about just, you know, like you mentioned Neil Spacek, like that he'll go and like meet for hours with Neil Spacek, get an idea of exactly what a room's going to look like so that he can figure out exactly how he's going to shoot it and mm-hmm. uh, where he could use what and all that stuff. Um, but they all uh, say that like one of the coolest things with Sam now, and I think we've, we've hit on this before was that he has these like storyboards that are like, it's basically a comic book drawn out beforehand. So it's like every shot Sam has it in his brain before it happens. And so there he's like, you can like literally look at the storyboards and see it on the screen. Like it's just, he knows. And so Bill, he said they all have like this shorthand that Bill just knows exactly how to make what he wants happen and what he's looking for and that kind of thing. See Uh, another funny story. I thought was that there was apparently going to be a gag about Jameson, uh, wearing the Spider-Man suit at night when everybody left the office <laughs> <laughs> and then he would like dance around in the Spider-Man costume. But uh, if you've ever looked at J.K. Simmons without a shirt on, which is a hobby of mine, I guess. <laughs> uh, He's you, ripped. You, you know that guy's in excellent shape. Yeah. And so apparently he put it they had to put it on one time and sam was like well he's not supposed to look amazing in it it'd be funnier if he had like a little like like belly like little pot belly beer belly not right. if he's fucking ripped yeah uh, alvin Sargent had a funny story too like where they because he's he was talking about uh sam Raimi's humor and how they were always like this guy with his weird jokes and stuff and uh so he wrote into the script uh, the joke that Otto says right before the press, like the experiment in front of the press, where he's like, ladies and gentlemen, my wife Rosie and I would like to welcome you this afternoon. But before we start, has anybody lost a large roll of $20 bills in a rubber band? Because we found the rubber band. <laughs> and he said, we wrote that as a joke on Sam just to see what he would say. And he was like, he read it and was just like, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then it would be uh, proper to not mention Sam Raimi uh, beat the shit out of Toby again. Uh, Alvin Sargent uh, mentioned that he literally called him up and was like, you need to have Harry slap Toby right across the face. And he's like, okay, I can figure that out. Well, we'll put that in there. He's like, have him do it twice. <laughs> he needs to slap him twice. A man <laughs> slap, he said. <laughs> and, uh, and then, of course, uh, there's the scene where Toby drops his books. Uh, Peter drops his books and he's sitting there and uh, Sam Raimi is one of the guys walking by with the backpack that smashes him in the head uh, <laughs> as he goes by. He, uh, Of course he is. Yeah, he said he said uh, like he was trying to instruct people like the people, the other actors in the scene were just not getting it. Like he was just like, look at his hand under that book. Step on his hand. Step. You gotta, <laughs> you gotta stop it when you walk by. <laughs> and like he said he would have them like going by and the actors were like just kind of going and they were like scared to hit Toby. And so yeah. they did, he said they weren't hitting him hard enough. And I'm like, no, <laughs> you got to go harder. And he said, and you can look at the scene and see like in some parts of it, like Toby gets pissed there. I think there's a blooper reel or something where like, Toby's just like, what the fuck? You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> and it's, uh, Bruce 
Bruce Warren did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he said he does it. He had to do it like a ton of times because the other actors were just kind of kind of, you know, like just yeah, barely. Not really it, hit you know? So like Sam's like <laughs> grabbing the backpack down. No, like this. And like smacking him across the head. <laughs> Gotta give well, it to him one good time so he doesn't have to keep doing it. Over yeah, over I love the way that Sam Raimi, like especially if you watch some of the behind the scenes stuff, like he just uh, like jokingly just kind of gives talk shit to his to his stars especially yeah. he does it to toby a lot <laughs> he does it to alfred molina a little bit too but he really does it to toby mcguire a lot in the in the behind the scenes stuff and i just like i like that relationship though like you know that they're friends because they can do that mm-hmm. you kind of like sam and you know and bruce campbell i also love that they worked in that joke the my back my back you know yeah. when he falls which is a joke about Toby complaining about his back hurting. Well, you know what's funny with that is like, and even Laura Ziskin says it in her commentary, but in the Sam and Toby commentary, uh, they actually have a conversation about it. And Toby's like, people always ask me if that's about that thing. And he's like, I always say like, I mean, if you want it to be, it can be and blah, blah, blah. And Sam's like, yeah, he's like, that joke was actually in the script. He was oh, like, what? it was, he was like, it was in there. And, he he said I was gonna change it because I didn't want to seem like a dick about it. And <laughs> um, he said that he went to Toby and Toby was like, "No, it's funny. Use it. Like, let's do it." It's funny. <laughs> it's funny if you if you because I mean, if you know the behind the scenes story, it makes it that much funnier. I think. But everywhere you read, will say that like it was put there because of that. But yeah, those two act like it was. They say no. Uh, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. One last thing I wanted to mention too, just about the stunts. Uh, Rosemary uh, Harris. Better name. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Uh, she uh, she did all her own stunts. Like she was like super excited about doing her stunts. I love it. Like Alfred Molina, like says he was never into that. Um, yeah, because he, he because, is adamant that like I don't do stunts. You know, <laughs> he'll do them yeah. if it's required. Like if it's going to be a scene where you can see his face and you know you, the camera's right up there. But otherwise, he's like, I don't, I don't want these stuntmen to be out of work. I'm going to let them do it. <laughs> yeah, and he, yeah, exactly. And so, but Rosemary Harris, they said, was excited about it, like getting strung up on the wire on the side of the building and stuff. They said her husband was there, like covering his eyes and just like, what's wrong with her? And she's like, yelling, like let's do that again, one more time. Yeah, well, she had she had a, a stunt double, and she saw the stunt double do it, like, specifically, you know, like, a scene, I mean, she, there's several scenes where she does stunts, but, like, the scene where, you know, Spider-Man rescues her, and he comes swinging in, holding her, that's, that's a wire stunt, that Rosemary Harris was on a wire being held by Spider-Man and being swung down to the street, and she saw her stunt double do it and was like, I can do that. <laughs> so she, she <laughs> talked them into letting her do it. And, yeah. you know, she, and she had a blast. It seems like doing it. I just, I love Rosemary Harris, by the way. Yeah. Uh, I just think she is wonderful. Like in all the interviews with her, she, she very much feels like this, a piece of like a connection to old Hollywood, you know, Yeah, but she just seems like the sweetest grandma. The, um, there, the the scene the my back my back scene and toby is saying in the commentary he's like i always do a lot of my own stuff but i was he's like i'm, I'm not doing this one like this one's yeah ridiculous. i don't yeah <laughs> where he hits the two cars yeah, yeah where he hits the two cars <laughs> sam says he uh Toby says he's actually like he hates heights. Like say he he got in an argument with Sam about like Sam wanting him to walk closer to the ledge to like look over the ledge at that one point. And uh mm-hmm. Sam's like, you come over here, or Toby's like, you come over here and stand on this ledge and look at it. And he like made Sam do it. And Sam was <laughs> like, Okay, yeah, this this is fine. We'll work with this. You know, like it was like it's kind of scary, but 
<laughs> when he falls he said uh sam was like it's so funny like have all these stunt guys that are really good at their job and for some reason on that day there was like a new kid and uh they sent him in to do this stunt and i'm like you guys are experts in this why, why are you sit? why are you sitting in the new kid they're like you'll see <laughs> but the, but that stunt those guys won uh there's the taurus world stunt awards they won best overall stunt like oh, uh, wow. for for nice. that particular fall it's it's fun to watch that's another one that there there are a lot of um there's some behind the scenes footage of that and it's that guy's fallen fast like, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's fun to watch though uh it, it's really and then he just you know they just slow him down and he stops but it's uh, I, when I watch stuff like that, I'm thinking not only are they having to be concerned, this is why I love stuntmen so much. Not only are they having to be concerned with the safety of the stunt and making it look cool, but he's in character as well. Mm-hmm. He's having to make his arms flail and things like that. So he's also having to portray a character while also in the back of his mind, all this safety stuff and what am I supposed to, how am I supposed to position myself in this, you know, that's a I don't that's incredible to me honestly yeah. <laughs> like yeah. it really it's is. not just it's not just fall off the building it's no how does this character fall exactly oh yeah yeah especially in a scene like that where they're on screen for a significant amount of time you know mm-hmm. and, and it is a, a character moment yeah all right so let's talk a little bit about post-production well specifically let's talk a little bit about the music uh because uh, we brief, very briefly mentioned him in the last episode, but we didn't really talk about Danny Elfman too much, uh, which is a shame because I think his score for Spider-Man is a big part of what makes that movie great. Oh, yeah. It's, a, it's an incredible score. Uh, Elfman, of course, no no stranger to the superhero genre, having written the iconic scores for Tim Burton's Batman movies in the early 90s. Uh, and his first time working with Raimi was on uh, Darkman. And I, well, I guess technically his first time was Army of Darkness because he wrote that Army of the Dead theme. But first time scoring an entire film for Raimi was on Darkman in 1990, which is, of course, Raimi's first superhero movie. Yeah. Uh, he went on to score a simple plan for Raimi as well. Uh, so it'd be safe to say that the two enjoyed working together until it seems Spider-Man 2. Because in 2005, Danny Elfman, this is so 2005. This is not long after you know the movie came out. Danny Elfman was interviewed by Chud.com. Uh, And during the course of that interview, uh, he called Spider-Man 2 a miserable experience. Going on to say, and this is a long quote, I'll just read the whole thing. But he said, quote, it's like my connection with Sam got completely severed. As far as I'm concerned, he went to sleep. Somebody put a pod next to him. And when he awoke, he wasn't the same person I'd known for a decade. He went right there from number two on my list of favorite directors to the exact opposite of what I look for in a film experience. Everything I could do on Spider-Man 1, I couldn't do on Spider-Man 2. He got so intensely attached to the music, I couldn't even adapt my own music close enough. It's the first time I've ever walked from a director in 20 years. I'd rather go back to waiting tables than to do Spider-Man 2 again. Ooh. Yeah, that's pretty damning. And I, I couldn't find a, any further details on what exactly caused this, this rift. But it, it's really odd because pretty much every other person that you hear talk about Sam Raimi just raves about how nice he is and how great he is and how much they love working with him. Yeah. So I, I'm very curious as to what caused him and Elfman to have a falling out. Uh, and I couldn't find any other mention of it anywhere except for that one interview. Uh, but what we do know is that Elfman is not going to return for Spider-Man 3. Uh, he's replaced, and 
it, but although it does seem like him and Raimi reconciled later on because Elfman comes back and scores Oz the Great and Powerful and Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness for, for mm. Raimi. So I guess whatever it was, they they kissed and made up and now they're all good. <laughs> well, you can count this as post-production fun facts, Justin. I actually have your answer. Do you? Okay, uh, good. Because I, I hunted and couldn't find it. So please do tell. So my understanding is it was because Sam became a big fan of composer Christopher Young. Uh, Christopher Young was probably in his head. This is my theory. This is not written anywhere or said by anybody, but I think he's in his head because around the same time this movie's happening, Ghost House Pictures, Sam Raimi's production company, is doing The Grudge, and Christopher Young uh, does The Grudge score. And so maybe he's listening to a lot of his stuff there because... Apparently, Sam gets super into the Hellraiser soundtrack, which Christopher Young also scored. Right. And uh, so, which is fantastic. But he also does a lot of the sequels. Uh, He ends up falling in love with the uh, second sight sequence from Hellbound 2. Mm -hmm. And uh, he uses Hellraiser scores as a tip track on the stuff he's doing uh, for Spider-Man 2. And he falls in love with the way that that works. And so, anyway, he's putting stuff together, and uh, apparently when Elfman was trying to score this thing, he felt like Sam was really up his ass more than normal about, like, trying to control what happens with the music. Uh, I picture him probably just being, like, overly enthusiastic about it. Yeah. Mm. uh, And Elfman probably has his own ego, but he was supposedly even doing the whole, like, you got to do it this way. Like, Christopher Young does this thing. Like, uh, I want you to try blah, blah, blah. Uh, and if you want to get more specific, in particular, there were a few moments. I think the trade sequence being one where Sam was having trouble relaying what he wanted to Elfman, apparently. And mm-hmm. uh, that second sight sequence from Hellbound 2, he had that there. And they were having, they couldn't get licensing to it. So he wanted something similar to that. So he was trying to get Elfman to use that song or like make him something like it. And Wouldn't that have Elf- been weird if they had gotten the rights to it? And then all of a sudden in the middle of Spider-Man two, there's a score from hell. Well, from Hellraiser. <laughs> you should listen to what's there and the actual thing. Cause yeah. it's it, cause uh, Elfman finally told him, why don't you fucking just hire Christopher young? And he walked and he was like, he was like, I'm not doing any other rewrites. I'm not doing anything else. And so then Raby hired Christopher young. And so Christopher <laughs> Young came in and he wrote a similar piece since they couldn't get the rights to the soundtrack and he rescored a bunch of stuff. Uh, and I think they brought in another composer too, but also Young then ends up becoming like Raby's guy till he ends up mending stuff with, with Elfman. So, mm. so some of the music in this, even though it's credited to Elfman was composed by Young in Spider-Man yeah, 2. He, he, he says he rescored uh, a, a few different things. Yeah, him and another guy. Yeah, because, yeah. I mean, he they had worked together before. Christopher Young had, had done um, The Gift as well. Uh, he he was right. a composer yeah. on The Gift. And then, of course, he comes. We talked about him during our uh, Drag Me to Hell episode. So he did that as well. But he also, he is the composer on Spider-Man 3, which we'll talk about on our next episode. But so, yeah, so the two, obviously, they have a, relationship but yeah i mean they you, you had can see together. a side by side of the scores too like i found a video that has like a side by side with like well it'll have like you know elfman score over the right. trade sequence versus young score over the trade sequence and hmm. nice. okay. interesting. very interesting 
The Spider-Man 2 was released on June 30th, 2004, and was, to no one's surprise, a major success, ultimately bringing in $788 million worldwide during its theatrical run. And much like the first film, it was a critical success as well, even with critics who hadn't given the first film a positive review. Uh, For example, we didn't mention this, I don't think, in our last episode, but Roger Ebert, writing for the Chicago Sun-Times, had given the first film just two and a half stars. Uh, And here's what he said. I'm just going to read the opening paragraph, word for word, of his Spider-Man 1 review. Imagine Superman with a Clark Kent more charismatic than the Man of Steel, and you're un- you'll understand how Spider-Man goes wrong. Tobey Maguire is pitch perfect as the socially retarded Peter Parker, but when he becomes Spider-Man, the film turns to action sequences that zip along like perfunctory cartoons. Not even during Spidey's first experimental outings do we feel that flesh and blood are contending with gravity. Spidey soars too quickly through the skies of Manhattan. He's as convincing as Mighty Mouse. (laughs) Tied words from Ebert. (laughs) In his review of Spider-Man 2, however, Ebert gave the film the full four-star treatment, perfect score. Wow. Uh, He he works on a four-star scale. And this is what he says in that review. Spider-Man 2 is the best superhero movie since the modern genre was launched with Superman. It's a real movie, full-blooded and smart, with qualities even for those who have no idea who Stanley is. It's a superhero movie for people who don't go to superhero movies, and for those who do, it's the one they've been yearning for. So you gave it a Ray review, and, and nice. Ebert was not alone in this sentiment. Uh, Brady Langman, writing for Esquire, called it, quote, a piece of art that will live on for generations from now. And many critics and fans alike consider Spider-Man 2 to be one of the greatest superhero movies of all time. Uh, Though I suppose that if one (laughs) were to dig deep enough into the bowels of the internet, one might find some armchair critics who would disagree with that. Well, it sounds like, I mean, just from even uh, old Fred Molina's experience, uh, even before the movie started, there were kids (laughs) who needed an app. So... And I, and I gotta say, I, I went to I went to Amazon, IMDb, uh, and Letterbox. Letterbox let me down this time. Like Letterbox was like, there's little quippy, you know, cool Letterbox reviews, but the the IMDb people were they were on something on this one. <laughs> uh, they, they, uh, let's see. Here's one. Uh, this is from Barking Fish Lake. Yes. Okay, did they actually read a Spider-Man comic book? I am sick and tired of great comic heroes being turned into a load of crap on the screen. This is truly another example of how stupid Hollywood writers, directors, and producers take a great action hero and reduce him to a bunch of screen garbage, only to satisfy a greater population who have no vested interest in the character. Poor Spider-Man. What a whip. Poor Peter Parker in complaining and carrying on started to drive me wacko. This movie really sucks. Special effects are incredible, but that has to do with technology, not writing. What can us true Spider-Man fans really do about this crap produced by Hollywood? Nothing. All we can do is endure another pile of crap soon to be released. Michael Moore said it best. Hollywood producers should be forced to see their own crappy movies. (laughs) <laughs> i love a spider-man review that ends in a michael moore quote yeah <laughs> i'm reading way too much spider-man right now and i can tell you the only thing missing from toby mcguire's performance as peter is he's less obnoxious than stan lee's version right. so, <laughs> i don't i don't know somebody somebody read a comic book 
let's see. Uh, it's another IMDb one. This is uh, Disco Didi. I understand that a lot of the audience at the Spidey films are comic book fans or avid watchers of the cartoons. This does not, of course, justify for the popularity of the film. This movie was just as disappointing as The Hulk. Just like the audience, I was intrigued to watch the movie as a comic book fan. Part of the disappointment might have come from the high expectations for it, but beyond that, there are some things to take into account. First, the movie's too long, slow-paced, extremely sappy. The best example of this is the subway scene. We'll protect your identity, Spidey. Oh, give me a break. I would have been the first to go tell Mary Jane and get some good money off the newspaper for his cover. A million bucks? Come on, you wouldn't do it too? If I had not been for if it had not been for the fact that my little cousin was enjoying the movie, I would have walked out. Two hours of my life I won't be able to get back. What a waste of money on production, acting, and consumers. Bottom point, don't see this movie. It might just make you less smart. <laughs> I love that a big one of the big bullet points of his review was like, you know, if I if I found if I saw Spidey's face, I'd be a total dick about it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, there's some of these reviews that really have a problem with that. But my first thought is this like, what are you going to do? Like, they're not this is before, you know, they're walking around with camera phones. Yeah, they don't know his name. Yeah, they just know some white kid. There's a white kid with brown hair. Like, what what are you going to do? You, you didn't find his ID laying next to him or anything. Yeah. And here's the thing. Spider-Man, Peter Parker is the worst out of all the superheroes in keeping his secret identity. That's like a <laughs> staple of his character is how bad he is at keeping his identity a secret. How much he wants to keep a secret and how little he's able to do. He's that. awful at it. <laughs> um, let's see. How about uh, Chuck Norris facts? Wow. <laughs> Wait, we'll just start some of those. No, uh, this is a review from somebody. Uh, shame on you, Sam Raimi. How can you take one of the most iconic comic book characters of all time and end up with a movie like this? What are you doing? I've got to ask how Sam Raimi ended up in the director's chair in this movie in the first place. What has he done to prove himself worthy of taking on a project of this magnitude? The Evil Dead trilogy? Give me a break. Those B-movies should be used as evidence to show why he's not the right man for the job. I could go in detail on each and every single thing I had a problem with in the movie, but I don't have enough hours of the day to write them all here. I will, however, go into detail on just a few things I found particularly frustrating or laughable. Soft-spoken nerd Tobey Maguire once again robs his character Peter Parker of all his comic book counterparts' charisma and sense of humor. Casting Tobey Maguire in this role has got to be the biggest casting mistake of all time. Mm. Kirsten Dunst is no better as Mary Jane. She manages to zap any hit of spunk her character had in the comics and betrays her melodramatically, and at times, she's just hard to watch. As far as the scenes are concerned, there's one that stands out in my mind as the worst. That's right. It's the train scene. The train scene rates right up there with the utter ridiculousness of Shia LaBeouf swinging like Tarzan from vine to vine in Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal School. You mean to tell me that in New York, that even though the true identity of Spider-Man is revealed to an entire train full of people, not one single person decides to make Trump make trouble for the wall crawler by going public with his identity. Yeah, right. After three Spider-Man fills from Sam Raimi, I'd say it's time to go back to the drawing board. Let's reboot the franchise. Get casting right this time. Let's leave out the camp and get to the core of what's made Spider-Man one of the most beloved characters of all time. Spidey deserves more than this. <laughs> and people do not like that train scene. That's two in a row. Oof. Yeah. This, this, this one review was, uh, I just liked it because the title said this put me to sleep and made me think it was the 50s again. I don't know. What is that? <laughs> uh, they at the, the end of the review says, "Why would it be so hard for the police to shoot this octo man?" 
who, by the way, does not have eight legs. Oh, well, this infantile writing. If I want mindless action, I do not need this much tripe. <laughs> it's got eight limbs. He's got. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. <laughs> this review's title was just fuck this movie. Um, <laughs> these are all like one star reviews. Uh, one of the worst sequels ever. How about that one? Yeah. He just said it's, it's so awful. I don't want to waste my time explaining why. Uh, Flaming Dumpster Fire was this title. I'm skipping through the IMDb ones. Uh, this title was just, no. <laughs> this film is nothing like Amazing Spider-Man 2, which is the best superhero movie of all time. Cool. This film makes no sense and has no plot. All right. What, what uh, planet are these people living on? I don't know. <laughs> I love it. I'm sorry. There, there's so many. There, so I told you last night we were talking, there were so many people that hated this movie. I like this Amazon review. One out of five stars. Grandson movie. I don't know what that means. <laughs> what? <laughs> but <I just laughs> the review. What? <laughs> uh, Mark gave it one out of five st- stars. Why does this movie have to written so bad? Have to written? <laughs> That's what it says. Why does this movie have to written so bad? Wow. Uh, and uh, I mean, Butler. Fair point. Yeah. yeah. Touche. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this the title of Butler's review is one out of five stars. And so why the such good reviews? <laughs> and it says this movie, one of the damn dumbest movies I've seen in a long time, as if the first one wasn't bad enough. Just what I thought this one would be somewhat better because there's no chance of it being worse than the first. I was wrong. I don't see how you people can enjoy something so damn dumb that again, I'm sure more than the majority of you are computer nerds anyway, that get off on this dumb ass superhero movies. Well, that's just unnecessarily mean. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I I just like this one because it's one out of five stars. What? That's the title. Is this a game or what? Neither was Black Cat or Shocker in Spider-Man 2. Is this a cartoon? I am confused. (laughs) What did they think they were watching? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Let's uh, let's nail down some uh, quick hit letterboxes here. Uh, Half star by The Go-Go. Not a single thought behind McGuire's eyes. (laughs) (laughs) stacy gave it a half star and said mary jane shut the fuck up (laughs) uh shogun rua gave it a half star endless melodrama most of it boring nonsense between listless lobotomy patients toby mcguire kirsten does hey idiots this is dumb cgi superhero schlock the audience came to see special effects fights and hoping against all reasons some comedy not a third-rate daytime soap opera as for the fights yeah they suck lifeless routine cgi garbage and no there's no humor to be found and it takes itself far too seriously total crap uh, at least the, the, I, I don't agree with any of these but at least the letterbox ones are a little bit more well written than they're the more idea. coherent yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh the rogue critic gave it a half star says as i love this this is this is one of those Really solid ones. Half star for the Rogue Critic. As with its predecessor, film is well cast, especially McGuire and Simmons, with great music and truly excellent action. Though the script and execution have some mild corny moments, story again fits well within its genre and retains clear development and good character-driven drama. Pacings is improved, yet the non-existent plot contains quite a few plot holes and convenience and some illogic. Though part of the best comic book trilogy, unfortunately the film suffers due to content even if a bit milder and aforementioned weakness rating F it's, it's a, a weird review. That's a like very weird review. It feels yeah. like that feels like an AI wrote that review. 
like if that. I like if I told Chat GPT to write a negative review of Spider Man Two, that's what they came up with. <laughs> Rory Rod says, like it's not worthy of a title. Whenever I'm sitting in front of the TV and this shit comes on, I suddenly wish I was watching Trolls Two or The Room. These movies may be bad, but at least they're funny. Spider Man Two is just boring. A seven-year-old who discovered his dick while watching this movie and wakes to Mary Jane likes it. To be honest, I'd rather wake to Norman fucking Osborn. If you want a good Spider-Man film, watch Homecoming for the true friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. Wake to Tom Holland. He is a sexy fucker. (laughs) (laughs) This guy sat down to watch... He sits down to watch a movie and he's got his like Vaseline and his Kleenex. He's just like... Okay, spit, here we go. <laughs> he spits in his hand and he is ready to crank one out. I'm like, whatever. It's just you gotta please him uh right off the bat. Grim Grimaru guy says, half star, the neighbor offers Mr. Spider-Man a chocolate cake, but it is clearly a yellow cake with chocolate ice cream. Icing. The glaring error took me out of the movie entirely. It took everything <laughs> in me not to smash my television. Unbelievable. <laughs> The guy has anger issues. I mean, he needs to work out, I think. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I did like this Tristan half star. There are not two Spider-Man in this movie. So, like, I don't even know why it's called Spider-Man 2. Don't promise me something that doesn't happen, you idiots. No Way Home had three Spider-Mans, and it was the third movie, which makes it better. Sam Raimi really missed the mark on this one. <laughs> stupid. So stupid. Oh, man. Is that all of them? That's all of them. All right. So, uh, that was... More than I was bargaining for. (laughs) It's just weird to me that that many people would dislike this movie. Because So I know that based on uh, the discussions that the three of us have had off mic, uh, that there's probably a very good chance that our discussion on this film is going to be somewhat like hyperbolic. uh, Because I know that all three of us are are fans Mm. of this. And Mm -hmm. sometimes that's okay. I've decided. I've decided that sometimes it's okay to be hyperbolic because sometimes when you talk about a piece of art or a piece of entertainment, speaking about it hyperbolically, saying this is the best ever of this or this or this, uh, it's not only natural, but sometimes it is true. Sometimes it is deserved. You know, if you're talking, it's, it's hard to not be, uh, not talking hyperbole when you're talking about a a work of art like you know the Beatles' White Album, right? right? Or right. Picasso's Guernica, or mm. Justin Lin's Fast Five. Some some of these are just they're the best at what they do. Yeah. So when I say that our uh, I expect our discussion of Spider-Man Two to be hyperbolic, I don't mean that that's undeserved. I just mean that that's a to me, that's almost like the only way you can talk about this movie is kind of gush about it, you know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, be- but before I start going on just a full on rant where I declare my love for every frame of this movie, um, I want to pass it off to the two of you. Like, wh- what do you think? Where do you think Spider Man 2 ranks in the pantheon of comic book movies in general? I think it's a really, really solid uh, second entry. Uh, you know, being able. Being able to pull off a film of this size uh, on an existing IP that is not only accepted by the fans, but also critics, um, that is no small feat. To do it twice is impressive. And, you know, despite the critics, I'll put some air quotes around critics that we just heard from <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> on, on uh, Letterboxd and uh, IMDb and whatnot. 
Um, you know, I think the large, the large section of the populace like really do appreciate this movie for a lot of different things. Uh, you know, the 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 acting, which okay, say what you want about Toby Maguire as Peter Parker, he's consistent. So is Kirsten Dunst. I, I don't know if consistent is a is high praise when you're talking about an actor. <laughs> I'm, I'm saying I'm saying the, if the, I were the, an actor, that's not least. how I would want to be described. <laughs> well, he's well, consistent. The very least you could say is that they're consistent. I think that's an Oscar that, category. Yeah, right? yeah. most <laughs> consistent. <laughs> and the winner for most eh, is... uh, most uh, most reliable, <laughs> their most punctual actor. <laughs> um. But, you know, Alfred Molina comes in, knocks it out of the park. Uh, you know, and th- there's there's a lot of really good things to say about a, the performances, uh, which we've spent the the entirety of this episode praising all, all of the things. So uh, in terms of the comic bookness, uh, you know, speaking as a comic book nerd, uh, I I really I really enjoy this. I would rather I would rather watch Spider-Man 2 then spider-man one amazing spider-man one and two combined like this is such a solid entry that uh it really does stand head and shoulders above the rest yeah um and it's got and it's got staying power like it's it's one thing to you know make those movies it's a little bit like comedy, and I've said this before about comedy. Comedy tends to ha- have a short shelf life. And a lot of these things, if you go back and, you know, as great as Tim Burton's Batman uh, from 1989 is, there are parts of it that feel very dated. Um, and maybe we just haven't hit those yet with the Spider-Man movies, with you know, since they're made 20 years later. But these feel pretty timeless and, yeah. and I, I i think it's just it's batting a thousand man yeah i think the the most dated thing about it for me is like some of the cgi and it is is you know does it hold up as well today sure and, and that's more right. obvious even now than when you probably watched it on dvd because especially if i'm in... sitting right in front of my big mm-hmm. screen yeah and like the... i I actually watched this, you know, they, they just debuted on, on Disney plus and they've got them in 4k and they look stunning in 4k on uh, that, that 4k stream. But yeah, the, it makes the flaws in like the quality of the CGI does stand out more. That's not enough to, that doesn't bother me. It's just a thing you could say that does date it. Like the scene of like Doc Ock crawling up the building with Mary Jane, I think is the most egregious one. Um, but they look a little rubbery, like the, like the, um, burly brawl in the matrix sequel you know oh yeah 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 i could see that uh but yeah it doesn't it doesn't like kill the movie for me or anything either um i think i in the in the whole pantheon of superhero movies it's gonna be tough to say like exactly where i would rank it or anything uh but i mean it's up there it's it's got to be in the top i mean i I'm betting it's in the top five it's at least in the top 10 you know and uh well i mean for you personally though I mean, not, not not general consensus, just for you. It's it might be my favorite. Yeah, yeah. I mean it, it might be my favorite superhero movie. I think it, I think everything that matters they nail. You mm-hmm. know, like the the performances, like the the story, the emotion that should be there, the love story, all of that stuff. I love I love that you can enjoy it on its own 
like this, but I do really dig uh, the the throwbacks to the first one, like the, uh, you know, they revisit like the backyard discussion and stuff. Yeah. Like uh, yeah. I like stuff like that in there. Yeah. Um, and you can tell like Sam, I, mean, I think they even say it in the, in the commentaries talk, he and Toby are talking about like, it's so cool that Sony let them have, you know, it could, they could have been way harsher, but like, Laura Ziskin and everybody were just like, kind of do your thing, you know, like they were like, we still get to tell our coming of age story. We get to make uh, a comedy, a drama, mm -hmm. uh, our little indie film in the middle of all this still. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and it's even neat too, that, that like you get those like old school values, like thing in the uh, way that the victory is obtained by Spider-Man. It's not mm -hmm. violence. Violence doesn't do anything at the end of the day. Like, it's uh he just appeals to Doc Ock's better nature. He uses his brains and yeah, figure stuff out and gets it done. And it's not like punching him in the face, which by the way is another thing I don't completely understand. Like why Doc Ock's able to not have his skull caved in by a Spider-Man punch. I know <laughs> yeah. Spider-Man Spider pulls his punches. I think yeah. that's established in the comics, but still I'm like dude that's you still... should be able to like not Yeah, Doc Ock doesn't guy. have <laughs> he doesn't have super strength or anything. He just has extra metal arms yeah but uh <laughs> but building off of the green goblin relationship that father-son thing you can tell that that's the stuff sam raimi loves yeah it's that human quality and i love the relationship between doc ock and peter mm -hmm. and like how he's like a mentor to him and yeah. <clears throat> and even even appreciating the the little lunch scene that they have together with uh his wife and oh yeah i love that scene. he sees like the the possibility of a life he could have if he could be like with mary jane and be open mm -hmm. about who he is if he didn't have to worry about the spider-man stuff it's just like you could I, I feel like they do a great job of of showing you all those things yeah about, i don't know it's just a really great self-contained awesome story i agree yeah i absolutely agree i mean you know, for years i always said you know spider-man 2 is my favorite of the raimi trilogy uh that's not a that's not a big revelation that's Pretty a pretty unsurprising and obvious statement. One that I think most people who watch this trilogy would would say. I think a lot of people would claim that part two is their favorite of the trilogy. Um, but yeah, after I watched it twice this week, and it's the first time I've seen it in a long time, like maybe since before the rise of the MCU. Mm. I, I don't know if I've seen this movie. So, uh, and you know, watching it with you know what what we're on now, like fifteen years into the MCU, yeah. Uh, and, you know, having that to compare it to, I do think that like Spider-Man 2 might be my favorite superhero movie. Like, I, th I think that it might be the best to me. Uh, now, I, that's not to say it's the best to everyone, but to me it is. And I know that's a big statement. Uh, and it's a title, best superhero movie. You know, that's a title a lot of people would probably give to uh, Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight. Uh, hell, I've probably said that about The Dark Knight myself at some point. Uh, and but as much as I love The Dark Knight and I love that that trilogy, that movie, really the entire trilogy, is kind of an outlier because they're comic book movies because they're Batman stories. But do they feel like they have their origins in comic books? Like not really. Not not they don't have that comic book like vibrance to them. You know, because right, yeah. that's not what Christopher Nolan was trying to do. He was trying to to make it re quote unquote realistic, you know? Uh, but by contrast, Spider-Man two is exactly what I want out of a comic book movie. You know, it's exuberant, it's fun, it's colorful. Uh, and, and it manages to be all those things, 
while never losing sight of what makes the Spider-Man character work. Yeah. Because yeah, we touched on this in our last episode, and it's something that always comes up when you talk about Spider-Man. But the thing that makes Spider-Man work is Peter Parker. Mm. Uh, that was true in the first movie, and it's even more true, I think, in the second movie, because Peter, you know, I said this about him in the first movie. He's a fuck up. Like, Peter's a goof. Uh, the the first action quote, quote unquote action sequence in the movie, which I love, is that scene where Peter is hilariously trying and failing to deliver a pizza on time. It's a great sequence, and I love that Sam Raimi shoots it and 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 it gets scored like it's a big action scene, but it's just yeah. Peter trying not to get fired from his job, which he ultimately <laughs> does get fired from his job, which is a thing with Peter Parker. He has a hard time holding down a job. He lives in a shitty apartment where he can't pay the rent. His love life is lousy, and this is all because of his other job as Spider-Man. It mm. kind of screws up being Spider-Man screws up Peter Parker's life. That's Spider-Man's thing. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's always been Spider-Man's thing. And what this movie's about, you know, is it's about Peter realizing that it really is his responsibility to be Spider-Man, that it would be selfish for him to not help people when he has the power to do so. I mean, that goes back to the, you know, the uncle Ben line. And it's something that he's forced to confront as Doc Ock starts going on his rampage and stuff. And as his power grows, like it, it sucks to be Peter Parker. Like that's the, that's the gist of, of the, of Spider-Man in general is that it sucks to be Peter Parker. It sucks to have the weight of that responsibility on your shoulders. But in the end, Peter decides to do it anyway. And that's what makes Spider-Man so great. And that's why so many people like Spider-Man. The character is because he doesn't have to do this and it sucks to have to do this, but he makes the choice to put everyone else ahead of himself. Yeah. You know? So uh, thoughts on for, for you guys, what do you think about the, the Peter Parker arc here? Like the way the whole Spider-Man no more stuff is handled. I really love the, when he finally, when he first decides and to, to reject, you know, Spider-Man and start living his life, seemingly for the first time again uh and of course raindrops keep falling on my head there's that great moment of the freeze frame the freeze frame dude it, that I, whole... <laughs> yes i i as you know the comedy guy i just died it, that it's, whole sequence it's such a makes great... me so happy yes it's, it, it's that is the perfect song for that yeah. and ending it in a freeze frame is just like that is spot on I love it. Yeah. I, it's yeah. so Sam fun. really wanted to do that. And apparently like that was uh, another thing. Like uh, I think Lawrence, this could like help push like them to let him do that. Like yeah. it yeah. was like, they said it was controversial, but then at the <laughs> premiere, like it got like a ovation, you know? Oh, it's like, great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, in terms of what Peter is going through and, you know, I was, I was talking with somebody about Spider-Man and the whole, the whole arc of Spider-Man, you know, um, from kid to college to working adult to and beyond and it was the discussion of like well what what spider-man is your favorite is it the high school spider-man is it the college spider-man and is it the adult spider-man is it the divorced spider-man you know what what speaks to you and it's and it just kind of dawned on me it was like you know and, and maybe this is something you only get with longevity of there at this point there is a spider-man out there for everybody mm -hmm. uh gary you're go you're going through ultimate spider-man where 
high school Spider-Man is getting is getting the redo, you know, and all of that stuff. But, you know, the stuff that I was into, the stuff that I have a stack of over here on my shelf is the stuff of adult working Spider-Man who deals with 9-11, whose his marriage is on the rocks. Like the, all of that stuff is very um, is very human, is very relatable, is very. um you know, speaks, speaks to a large section of the population. And again, that timeless quality of, yeah, you know, sometimes the really great stuff in life or in your work is a double-edged sword, you know, it's great, but then, oh, you got to commit to it. Hell, we're all on podcasts. This is a great, this is a great show, but we're all like, oh, I got to do the notes or oh, I got to do the editing or oh, we got to make sure we schedule the thing or oh, it's, there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes that a lot of people don't see that is uh, tough or frustrating or sometimes annoying to deal with. And it's just all of these things that with great power comes great. I think you could even leave that blank of just like with great power comes great annoyance with great power comes great. Uh, frustration with great power comes of course great responsibility but like you know uh how how with great power comes great organization like you you have to be able to do this stuff and it's not just one thing of like okay i've done it no it's a daily thing and i think you know spider-man is such a great character to remind the audience of like hey whatever you're going through be the best at it every day and I think whether you're a fan of young Peter Parker or adult Peter Parker, or, you know, whatever, whatever Spider-Man floats your boat, I think that's that message comes through. And that's part of the reason I like it. One of my favorite things about the movie, watching it, the I've watched it a few times over the past couple of weeks, too. And, and the last time I was watching it, you really like when you look for it in the movie there's the obvious like glaring ones, but there are like a thousand little screws that turn and like for him, like yeah. all throughout the movie, like this little pins poking him like yeah. throughout. So you, it, you could totally get it when he like breaks, you know, like when he, when he's like losing his powers and it's just like, it's too much and he's frustrated. And um, I appreciate that. I appreciate that they take the time to show like the weird relationship with Harry, the weird relationship with Mary Jane, the, aunt may stuff the everybody gets like love on like the connections of and, and toby says like I, I thought this was interesting that he would like sam's asking him in the commentary like how do you prepare for this and stuff and he said he actually like he he mentions he read all the comics that he read and stuff and then he would like he's like i'll read the script like a couple of times and he's like and then i get i like meditate on it he's like I, I like sit down and he's like and i'll get a notepad and i start writing out as Peter Parker, how I feel about Aunt May and then how I feel about Mary Jane. This is what my relationship with Harry is like. And uh, he says, I really try to think about all that. And I thought that was a really cool thing because all yeah. those things, like the, the thing with this is this one probably more than any other movie encapsulates like, like you, you talked about the comic book fact of it, the color and the excitement and all that, which is true. And also the heart of what made Spider-Man work in the first place. The thing that every single person fell in love with in the first place about him is just these relationships, 
his life, him as a character, like just being able to relate to everything. I love the MCU. I think that they get like the bigger and bigger it gets, the more and more you stand a chance of losing side of that. Yeah, I agree. And, yeah. and so this is really cool to be able to come to a movie like this. That's like its own little universe. Mm-hmm. And it's like this kid's story. And it's a, and, and there may not be a better version of, of a comic book movie than that. Yeah. I mean, I, that, that's kind of where, where I land and, you know, this time around watching it, well, not just this time around, but one thing I really like about that I really, really enjoyed watching this time was how Sam Raimi is allowed as a director to really show out, uh, you know, in, in the first movie, we got, we got all that great Sam Raimi character work. You know, we talked about that, like how, how he finds the humanity and everything mm-hmm. uh, we got that, but like up from a visual standpoint, um, you don't get, you don't have a lot of those signature Raimi visual moments in the first one. There are a couple here and there, uh, but nothing, uh, about that, about the first film visually screams. This is a Sam Raimi movie. Right. Uh, you cannot say that with Spider-Man too. Uh, I mean, this movie has his fingerprints all over it. Uh, and I think it's probably because, you know, the first movie made a ton of money. So there's a little more trust and the, he can get away with a little bit more. And Raimi's basically is allowed off the leash a little bit more uh, because we, we've mentioned it a couple of times with the operating room sequence where, with Doc Ock. That is one of the most Sam Raimi, Raimi-esque sequences in any of his films. Yeah. I mean, it's up there. I, I'd put it right next to like the um, the scene in Evil Dead 2 where the cabin, like the, the lamp and the taxidermied heads are all laughing. Like yeah. this is like, <laughs> this is like joyously unhinged Sam Raimi. I mean, you even get like the little deadite uh, POV shot from the cameras and the tentacles in that scene, you know? It's, they it's break really out a chainsaw. Yeah, you get the chainsaw. It's, it's wonderful. And it's, it, I mean, it's my favorite sequence in the movie. It might be my favorite sequence in a Sam Raimi movie or a superhero <laughs> movie. I just, that movie, uh, I rewatched the movie uh, two nights ago and I watched it with, with my wife and we watched that scene and she's like, can we rewind that and watch it again? I want to see that again. I was like, I will happily rewatch that scene again. Let's do it. <laughs> the girl so we re- dragged across the ground with her oh, nails. Like, yeah, scraping. it's so good. Uh. It's, it's like him leaning into his horror movie stuff. And I don't know, it's, it's like a, it's a pure, perfect distillation of everything i love about raimi as a visual artist Mm -hmm. in that sequence it's just him having fun it's just him trying to entertain the audience you know um but also i mean that's not to say that raimi is a purely visual guy i mean he he has a, a signature look but there's also just like there's an energy to this film like the way it's cut that mm-hmm. is quintessentially raimi there's a playfulness to it you know like the raindrops keep falling on my head sequence. Like that's very playful. A lot of directors wouldn't do something like that. Or mm. the scene, the scene of the elevator with Hal Sparks, which is another one of my favorite moments in the movie. Just a great little one scene comedy play yes. between between Toby and Hal Sparks. And it's really funny. Mm. Uh, there's like a hundred versions of that you can oh, find yeah. too. Like there's there's different different ways they do it. And the 2.1 version, I think he, he it's like a whole different thing where he's like pitching products for him to market or something (laughs) it's so good i I love it i mean uh you know there aren't there aren't many directors out there who can direct an act an action sequence that's as thrilling as like the the elevated train battle and also pull off the emotional beats we get with you know let's say like aunt may's story arc in this film yeah Uh, so it, it really speaks wonder 
to the skills of Raimi and his collaborators that it all works so well. And ultimately, I think that's because it's all based in characters, like real characters. And, yeah. and that's what he focuses on. We talked about that in the first film as well. You know, Aunt May's story resonates because you've learned to care about her, you know, and you also know that the reason like, you know, she's getting kicked out of her house and the reason she can't pay her mortgage is because her husband's died, which of course Peter feels responsible for. That adds a whole nother layer to his character as well. Um, and then you've got that train battle, which is also very much rooted in character. Uh, you've got this big, huge action sequence, uh, this big blockbuster fight scene, and you've got Spider-Man practically sacrificing himself, you know, to, to save the passengers on the train. And then, and one of, you know, something that some of those reviews complained about, that's one of my favorite moments from the film is all the New Yorkers on the train tending to Peter and promising to keep his identity a secret. You know, because he revealed his face out of necessity. I mean, he wasn't he didn't just pull off his mask to show his face like he, you know, he couldn't see. So in order to save them, he had to reveal himself, uh, proving that to him, saving the people on the train is more important than keeping his identity a secret. Right. Uh, that's basically and this is after, you know, this is basically him uh, like recommitting himself to being new york's hero after spending a, a large chunk of the movie questioning whether or not he wants to be spider-man yeah you know, that's the moment where he like realizes that this is what i this is who i am this is my responsibility and this is what i have to do there, there's a great moment the the fire scene where you know he has to run in there and save that kid it yeah. is showing that he he would do this anyway like he this is who he is as a right. person but then realizing that somebody still dies in the fire, that like yeah. maybe if he had had his powers, like he would have then been able to get everybody. Yeah. 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 And you know, it's really easy for a sequel like this to just be concerned with going bigger, bigger, bigger. That's what a lot of sequels do. Mm -hmm. uh, and Spider-Man 2 does go bigger. I mean, the budget's bigger. Uh, this was like 200 million, I think. The first one was like 140. Uh, so the budget's bigger. The threat from the villain is bigger. Because, you know, in, in the first one, the Green Goblin is just kind of like getting revenge on people who made norman osborne mad and this time it's like well if doc ock makes this thing it's going to blow up the city even though that's not his goal uh, right but right. that's what's going to happen um, you know so the you've got that the threats bigger the action sequences are much bigger uh, but what makes it work so well is that it even though it does go bigger it doesn't forget what came before you know this is like a true sequel that actually builds on the storylines from the first film you know mm -hmm. in the mary jane arc uh, everything that happens with between Peter and Mary Jane in this movie is, a, is, is based on their story from the first film uh, and Harry's arc, especially uh, because, you know, and, and because Harry is, I don't love James Franco in this movie. Cause I think he plays a little one note, a little, just like I'm angry all the time, but mm -hmm. his, his arc makes sense because, you know, he thinks Spider-Man killed his father yeah. and that thirst for revenge fuels Doc Ock's rampage where he's looking for Spider-Man. Yeah. at the end of the movie so it like so they, they they build on this stuff from the first movie and that that they use the those pieces to create essentially a reason that doc ock and spider-man are fighting which is smart blockbuster writing you know you, mm -hmm. you know you've got to get to where spider-man and doc ock fight so why is the reason and they use the entire plot of the first movie basically uh, but the, even more importantly than that i think is that peter's growth as a character from the first film to the second film feels like actual character growth you know which is not mm. something that you see in these types of films very often 
so it's it's like it's it makes this movie really something special i think because not only is it just fun to watch and it's it's a blast i mean you can tell Raimi's having a fun everyone on screen's having fun but like even from a story and a character standpoint like it is it's just head and shoulders above most movies like this yeah yeah absolutely totally agree i disagree <laughs> and here's gary's review i'm gonna do a little i'll take you i'll take you line by line <laughs> i guess we're at the point where we're gonna start wrapping things up but before we do let's get into some further viewing you're doing a double feature with spider-man 2 you're obviously i mean another spider-man movie uh that's cheating. You can't do that. <laughs> so uh, what is, uh, what's your ideal double feature with Spider-Man 2, Todd? Uh, you know, I think I'm going to go with uh, something that we have discussed on Cinema Shock before. Uh, the protagonist must battle slash surpass his mentor. Um, yeah, I well, I tend to focus on, you know, character beats and the story arcs anyway. So that's kind of uh, where my head's at here. Uh, from 2005, written by David S. Goyer, along with the film's director. Do we have any guesses? It's Batman Begins. It's Batman Begins. Absolutely. <laughs> so I got my uh, my Marvel DC doubleheader. All right. All right. <laughs> How about you, Gary? Uh, I actually was thinking of this earlier, and I, and I, and, uh, I think... I think I've mentioned this before, but I would I would say Superman 2 uh, okay. would be a great one for this because it's even got a similar concept, you know, where where he goes in and gets his powers taken away because yeah. he wants to be with Lois. And uh, oh, that's interesting. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I thought about that this last time when I was uh, watching it. It also has that feel of uh, I, I remember I think I said this, but it had that. It was the one that came on TV all the time that I remember mm-hmm. seeing the most, but I, it might have been the first time I saw like a superhero movie that actually had like the Superman's fighting those Kryptonians and they're like knocking each other through vehicles and yeah. stuff like that, you mm. know, and going. So it's like the big action and it feels like a comic book uh, with the high stakes like that. I think that's what this one does too. Yeah. Uh, so oh, yeah. yeah, Superman too. And that's a fun choice. The importance of being earnest. so for my pick i um i went a similar route with you guys honestly um you know i went with another sequel kind of like gary did uh i went with kind of another situation where because here's the thing you think obviously if you're gonna actually watch a spider-man double feature you're doing like spider-man one and two or you're doing spider-man two and uh, no way home because it's got alfred molina and willem dafoe in it Mm. Uh, but that's that's too easy if we're thinking outside the box just a little bit i go with another sequel another one where the director made a film it became highly successful as a summer blockbuster which gave him a chance to not only make a sequel to that film but uh to let get let off the leash for the sequel just like Sam Raimi did on this film to create another blockbuster that still feels very much like a part of that director's filmography, even more so than the first movie did. Uh, So for my pick, I'm going with Tim Burton's Batman Returns, which is like just a quintessential Tim Burton movie. Yeah. Just like this 
feel even more so than the first Batman. I think it's mm. just like this is like let's just let Tim Burton do all the weird shit he wants to do, and they did, and it was too weird for him, which is why he didn't return for the third one. <laughs> <laughs> for so my that's my pick, Batman Returns, nineteen ninety two. It's a uh, one of my what another one of my all time favorite comic book movies. It's like a good that. choice. I think this might. I think. With with both of us picking Batman movies, that that might be the closest we've ever come on. Yeah, a, on, yeah. A, on a further viewing there. I Justin. think I think you're right. I think you're weird right. that we all went DC. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It is weird. Right, I did think what? about I did think about uh, Winter Soldier. If you want to just talk about uh, possibly the best sequels of all time or something, you know, like yeah. superhero sequels or something. Yeah, yeah. that's sure. also a good one. It is. That's a great one. One of my favorites of the of, of the still one of my favorites in the MCU. Yeah. Well, considering the film's massive success, it should come as no surprise that everyone involved, especially Sony, uh, wanted to make yet another Spider-Man movie. And they wanted Raimi and his crew to come along again. And as we know, that sequel did happen. And while the road to all of these Spider-Man movies uh, have been a little bit bumpy, I think the road to Spider-Man 3 might be the bumpiest one of all. <laughs> so <laughs> that's a story that we're going to tackle during our next episode as we conclude our series with a look at the making of the final film in Sam Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy. A movie that I have not seen since the theater. I was about to say, I saw it right before uh, No Way Home, okay. I guess. That's a lot because. Worse. Yeah, well, I, I saw it because I wanted to see... I think I watched all the Spider-Man movies then. Gotcha. But that was the first time I had seen it since the theater. And uh, I don't know. I'm excited to watch it again. I'm excited to, to really it, yeah. analyze it this time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've actually already watched it in preparation for this. And, ooh, boy. <laughs> all right. Well, we know, where Todd, we, know where, we know where Todd's coming from in this episode. <laughs> so uh, I guess that's it for this episode, fellas. Let everyone know where you can be found on the internet. I'm at this is Gary Horde on all the social medias. You can follow the wrestling company I'm a part of at NWA. Uh, that's it. And June 9th, I'll be headlining a comedy show in Hiawassee, Georgia. You can uh, check on my social medias for more details on that as we get closer. If you like Star Trek, I will be hosting Trek Fest 38 in Riverside, Iowa, June 22nd through 25th. Go to trekfest.org for details. You can find me playing star trek adventures on cosmic crit on youtube at cosmic crit i'm also working my way through the entire star trek franchise in chronological order on my show computer resume podcast available now wherever you get your podcasts and on all the socials at computer resume and i'm at mr todd a davis on facebook twitter instagram letterboxd and D beyond as long as they behave themselves does anyone understand that as long as they behave themselves thing? Uh, the, it, it's one of those. It's one of those. If you know, you know. <laughs> I know. I know what it is. <laughs> it's just funny that you include it every time. It's also funny that you include your letterbox every time. I, 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 I will never stop mentioning that until you actually start using letterbox. I know. Uh, I know. <laughs> well, I'm at Justin underscore Bishop on Instagram uh, and Twitter and letterbox. Uh, the show is at cinema underscore shock on Instagram and Twitter. We're also on Facebook. You can find all of our episodes as well as links to our discord and our merch at cinemashock.net. Uh, if you like the show, share us with anyone, you know, any way that you feel like doing it. And until next time, may the wings of Liberty never lose a feather and be excellent to each other. Johnny knows the keys when he sees them.
And Lord knows kids like Johnny need the keys. Everybody loves the keys. People line up for them, cheer them, scream their names. And years later, they'll tell how they stood in the rain for hours just to get a glimpse of what taught them to hold on a second longer. I believe the keys are in all of us, keeping us honest, giving us strength, making us noble, and finally, allowing us to die with pride, even though sometimes we have to be steady and give up the thing we want the most, even our dreams. I really wish you'd have just done a Rosemary Harris voice during that. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be awesome. <laughs> <laughs>